it, the US doesn't have an Ericsson themselves. They used to have Lucent, but they sold loads to be sold. So, you know, they have different pieces of the jigsaw. Yeah. And in some ways, maybe the US government needs to fund a new manufacturer, basically. Well, that's one of the reasons they, they've got um, such a big thing for Open Run. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I suggested to Pompeo as well that he should buy Ericsson. Right. You know, it's owned by the controlled by the Wallenberg. That, wasn't there? Pardon? There was talk about, there was the talk about that. No, and I, yeah. I sent him a whole pile of stuff on, you yeah. know, the structure of the business. Because, yeah. And at that stage, Ericsson probably would have loved to have sold. You know what I mean? But buy but, what? Buy, buy the, the whole state. shooting. Buy no. Buy the, uh, buy Ericsson, not I mean, Sweden. I mean the US. <laughs> the other, do you know what I mean? Now they're getting carried away. Yeah, we'll have yeah. We'll have, we'll have, they didn't want to buy Greenland. We'll stage. have fucking Luxembourg for pudding. Um, they never buy Ireland. No, I was saying. Hello and welcome to another telecoms.com podcast recorded a bit sooner than the previous one than we normally do because we've got a very special guest who's Dennis O'Brien who's just flown in we're not saying from where but he's just flown in especially for this so uh, thank you very much um, and uh, yeah and Dennis I'm not even gonna try I'm gonna let him introduce himself because he's involved in so much stuff that I wouldn't do it justice but before we get back to Je to Dennis and, and introducing him properly We've also got to say that it's got an special appearance from Ian as well, which is why he's wearing that very snazzy you're, you're jacket. You're blending into the wall. Am I? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like a podcast chameleon. <laughs> I thought yeah. he dressed up for me. Oh, uh, there we go. Um, as yeah. you can see, I made a massive effort. Then. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Um, I've got a shirt on. You know, what do you want, blood? Um, and Ian's coming in because it's his birthday. It is. So happy birthday, mate. Thank and. You and it's not just any old birthday, is it? Tell us. No, it's uh, it's a big five zero. The Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My sister phoned up this morning and said, "You're really old now." Just full so, stop. That's yeah. it. End yeah. of chat. Um, but uh, yeah. So and you went. What? Who's this? So the only reason the reason I've got this on is partly because obviously Dennis is on, so we should look smart for our yeah, important right. guests. Only but, my best uh, Metallica T-shirt for Dennis. There's a, there's a restaurant called Rules in Covent Garden. Yeah, I've been there. They, they don't allow you in without a jacket. I don't think. I so. see. They always say that, but they always they do. probably would. But yeah. Well, you um, you go to Rules all the time, do you, Pierre? No, I've been to restaurants with, like jacket. I always see it's jackets people without jackets. Uh, but, but I mean, it'd be you might as well not take yeah, any yeah. chances, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so happy birthday! Thank Cheers, um, yeah, cheers, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Please. Dennis. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Nice to meet you. Cheers. Nice to meet you. And I, I've got to say, we're drinking, we've kind of done a full swap. Um, Dennis uh, brought in some beers and some other stuff, which I'll get to in a sec. Um, and these are these are tins from, they're called Live Beer from the Moore Beer Company. I'm drinking Illumination Best Bitter, 4.3%. Ian, what are you on? Uh, Moore uh, Resonance Citra Golden Pale, 4.1%. Yeah, and you, and you quite fancy that. And, we, and we've donated, reciprocally donated the perennial Hazy Jane to Dennis. Lovely. Yeah, is that all right? Is that all slipping nice. down? Lovely, slipping down nicely. Cool. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, the only thing, other thing I'll say, actually, as a lead-in to, to link all these things together, is um, Dennis very generously brought um, Ian a birthday present. He did. Should we show it? Yeah. Um, so he... Very nice bottle of wine. Very nice bottle of wine. There we are. Can you see <laughs> it on the thing, right? Mm -hmm. Lovely. And he wasn't sure whose birthday it was, so I got a consolation prize as well, which looks like an equally awesome bottle. I should have said it was my birthday. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? I leave you out for you. This looks like a, a 1990 Bordeaux, of which I don't have many in my, in my stock. So it might just be one of those things that just goes on display and never gets drunk as the, the sort of holy 
super duper. But thanks a lot for that. And that, that definitely qualifies. I know it's a birthday present. But as I said before, we, we have this sort of tongue-in-cheek, irregular, increasingly irregular segment that we call Bribe of the Week. And that definitely qualifies as, as a quality Bribe of the Week. So, so nice one on that one. So, look, um, I'll stop faffing. You haven't got anything to add, have you, Pierre? Uh, um, no. no, regarding oh, Happy Thanksgiving to happy. our oh, American audience. Yeah, right. When, yeah. when, when's that? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. And so we'll I probably... guess like today? <laughs> yeah, I don't know when we're going to publish this, whether it'll be this week or Monday, but it's recorded on a Wednesday, so two days earlier than usual. Dennis, so, so we'll get to you. Um, like I just alluded to, um, you're involved in, in a fair bit of stuff. Um, so why don't I just let you introduce yourself? Why, why are you on the telecoms.com podcast? Um, I suppose, you know, because I've been in the telecoms business for 30 years um, and I started out in Ireland where we started off selling long distance um, to corporates and then we got a mobile phone license. We sold that business to BT and then we were looking for something to do uh-huh. and we uh, got a license, in, bought a license in Jamaica and then we just rolled out across the Caribbean. Right. And then we started looking at other kind of places where we might go one day and we looked out to the Pacific and we bought a business in Samoa from New Zealand Telecom. Then we went to Tonga, Vanuatu, Nauru, uh, Fiji and then Papua New Guinea, which was the big mother out there. That's the biggest island. You clearly like working in islands as well as yeah. being from Ireland. I like, uh, yeah, <laughs> being from Ireland, I like islands. I like Commonwealth countries as well because there's good rule of law for the most part. Uh-huh. So, you know, those are the, the, the that was the cry. Did they have a mobile phone operator? How good were they? And was there a second operator? Those three questions was it. That was the due diligence. Right. right. So that, that that was the kind of, because I was wondering, you know, your activities in the Caribbean. Yeah. It's like a, a guy who worked in Ireland originally. All of a sudden, he's got this operation in the Caribbean and you're yeah. trying to sort of figure out how that happened. But it, was it really just the kind of size of the opportunity and an untapped opportunity with not much competition there at the time? Do you yeah, think? I mean, we were we, we looked at, you know, going for what was then a UMTS license in Ireland. And we put a team together that, but we just decided that was not viable. This is after I sold my business to BT. And then we looked at trying to get a license in Trinidad a couple of years before that. And that just fell apart. The process fell apart. So then the Jamaican government in early 2000 advertised the FT, inviting people to an auction. Right. And so an American company and ourselves went to the auction. We paid $47.5 million for the license. I'd never been to Jamaica. Um, and I just sent a fella down and he had a bank draft and we bought the license. And then we kind of went into a panic. We were in Dublin <laughs> on the phone bidding for the license and we were drinking rum. I'd never drunk rum in my life, but... <laughs> was that just getting you into just the into Jamaican the, spirit? Yeah. And, and so a guy called Frank O'Carroll was at the auction on a phone line and he's giving me, the, you know, it was going up and up and up and eventually, like it was... We were reaching the end of the road, and thank God for that. We bought it for $47.5 million. Was that getting close to that was what you were prepared to yeah, spend? Yeah, so for this 3 million people would be around the right I price. And this it. would have been around this was 2000? 2000, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, exactly. April, 2000. May 2000. So that was around the time you were sniffing around sort of auctions. I was, I was involved. I wasn't in journalism, then. I was working for a company called Analysis, which is now yes, Analysis yeah. Mason. They were yeah, doing yeah. some 3G bid books at the time. So yeah. I didn't do any in that area, but I did a few in Europe. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It was, it was an, an interesting, interesting time. Yeah. It was an interesting time. It was the good yeah. old, it was the rock and roll days of telecom. Like, mm. Yeah. You know, now it's it's shite. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. Right. Yeah. End of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it was a great industry. Everybody was like, you know, it was 
the Klondike, you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Valuations were brilliant. Everybody was doing stuff and, you know, everybody was go, 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 go. Whereas today, it's a moribund, moribund industry. Yeah, sadly. In terms of yeah, in terms of things like growth and margins and that sort. Growth of thing. margins, free cash flow, regulation, OTTs. You know, there's a lot of shite in the bucket at the moment. Yeah. Do Do you think the? I mean, we can talk more about I suppose, mm. the Caribbean activities, but do you think, on a sort of broad perspective of of what's happened over the period of time that you've been in the industry, that that the operators themselves or the industry is partly to blame? Or do you think it's regulated? I mean, would you point uh, your finger at anybody? I'd, pay, I'd say it's 75% the, regula- uh, the operators and 25% right. the regulators. Okay. Because, you know, everybody's been asleep at the wheel. You know, the GSMA, Etno, um, all the CEOs of all the big telcos have been asleep. None of them have... They couldn't see the changes as they were happening and they never... And they never try to influence what would happen. So Google, you know, offered the two big U.S. carriers a revenue share and they were told to fuck off by the carriers, which was a massive mistake. And actually that fucked up the industry for the next And why do you years. think they said that to them? Because they didn't. Not they, wanted, those words. they wanted to hold on to their customers and not yes. give Google access. Now, if they'd really thought what, I mean, this is in the late 90s, you know yeah. what I mean, when Google was a tiny business. Yeah. But if they'd looked it true down the pipe and said, oh, my God, look, you know, if they had a bit of vision, they could see that Google was going to get there one way or the other. Yeah, they were extremely well funded with great shareholders, you know, very big venture money behind them. They were going to get and they were very talented entrepreneurs, the two lads. So one one of the things that makes me think of, I, I, you know, I don't contest your your analysis situation at all. And I think it was even slightly apparent then, but certainly in hindsight, um, was they had the telcos had this very wall garden, protect our space, um, sort of protectionist thing going on. And and I suppose you can understand to a certain degree any business venture, and you, you would obviously know far more about this than I would, having never embarked on a business venture in my life. Um, so that's no great compliment to you, is it? Um, is, you know, you're always thinking about the trade-offs. You're thinking about the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it strikes me that they could only think about it in a in a pessimistic way, there was only downside of sharing anything at all, and maybe they had some hubris and arrogance about how much control they had and would continue to have. But they wouldn't have been given up, you know, given up much to give access to their customers. In in reality, you know, it was they were going to earn revenue, yeah. a revenue share from Google on they the advertise on the advertising. Now, if you look what happened in the last week. Uh, Apple, which was an absolutely seismic thing that came out of that, that uh, the the DOJ hearings, is that they have admitted now that they've been paying Google thirty six percent of the revenue yeah. of all advertising generated by iPhone users. Yeah, like that's a startling admission. In fact, that's the most important thing that has happened in the last five years. As God, far as I'm we didn't even cover it, so yeah. I caught, I'm ashamed. I only caught wind of this. Yeah, like, actually, today. No, no, it was all accidentally. It was all low key. You yeah, know, I see. Subterranean. So, 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 so note so, to self: Google write this up very, tomorrow. So Apple yeah. was trying to develop its own search engine, apparently. For, yeah, uh, and then Google basically came along. And well, it does. I mean, it has Safari and stuff. Money, yeah, but um, so. You know, so you buy a phone now from Apple for eight hundred, nine hundred grand. Yeah. All your any advertising that you look on the phone, you're they're they're getting thirty six percent, and that must stick in their throat big time like, as well. It is an extraordinary business model, 
and it kind of, you know, we haven't got the fair share, but it, it blows up all their arguments, like it torches all their arguments on fair share. Ah, well, the, 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 the size of the, yeah. of the revenue the, the fact share. they wouldn't revenue share, you know, Facebook don't revenue share, OGTs don't revenue share because they're greedy fucks, okay? But at the end of the day, they do a revenue share. They've just had to admit it. So they're when they treat, choose to. When, when they choose to. to. Now they've started in, in Korea as well. Yep. They've had to do a revenue share there. Well, Netflix do because they have to, effectively, it's a revenue share because they're putting money into the network. They have to subsidize, put money into network costs. So... The the the, the, the the dike is bro- broken. Like it's like a, the dam busters. I don't know if you've seen the movie. Next thing, boom, you know, there's a yep. deluge as such. Yeah. Well, do you reckon the dam's broken when it comes to the fair share? There are arguments. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll come back to that. Sorry, Ian, you were going to. I, I was just going to say. I mean, do, do you think um, it's it's too late to do anything now? It's almost uh, because it, it makes the it makes the situation that the telecom operators are in sound fairly bleak in a way. This that things have almost gone too far now to to possibly correct the balance of power that's oh, uh, no. shifted so much. Oh no, I think I think we are on the cusp of massive change here. Right. And, you know, I've been saying to the guys in Facebook who, who have been blocking this whole thing about fair share, I've said, guys, you're, you're, you know, you're in the Stone Age. Get into the real world here. You have to revenue share or give some amount of money towards network costs. I said, why would I build out, keep building out network capacity, which is, you know, we have to put up 25%, 30% more capacity in our networks every year for just to carry OTTs. 70% of our terabits are throughput on our network is OTT revenue, revenue or OTT operators yep. traffic, okay? You know, so the, the, the world is about to change. Like, okay, you know, Etno did a brutal job with the European Commission with Breton. A shocking job. Then they didn't persuade Barrick uh, either to really, you know, they couldn't persuade the regulators yeah. as well. So, okay, it was put into abeyance into the cold storage. But Thank God it's in cold storage. But it's going to come out and it's going to come out stronger and the arguments will be better marshaled. And hopefully this time all the operators will get on board rather than just four or five. Well, this, this is one thing I noticed because we've, we've, we've covered this topic a lot in, in Europe from mm-hmm. European perspective, but I never thought Etno and the operators themselves made a very good case for the impact of OTT traffic on their networks. And I, I think look, yeah. Telefonica, Vodafone, Deutsche, Orange did, okay, but then they found it difficult to get the other operators you know, and if you, you've got four or five big tech companies, they can be much more organized than trying to get 170 mobile operators in Europe. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, they, they, it's, I mean, and then you have your man Clegg running around the place, you know, you know, spoofing his head off, uh, you know, and, and warm uh, kind of doomsday scenarios if, if this changes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then they, the, and the more importantly, they didn't get to the regulators. And the regulators have been asleep at the wheel. They're moribund. They're all on Mogadon, from what I can see. And they, they're just <laughs> dealing in the past. Yeah. And they can't see they're the often future. Catch up. Yeah. They're up. They cannot see the future that you won't. Won't have 5G. You won't have 6G on a pervasive, ubiquitous basis all over Europe unless something gives, and then the OTTs who are probably 
two-thirds of the traffic in Europe start to contribute to network costs and the capex of that. Yeah, but it sounds like they should have spoken to you more because it sounds like you've actually looked at this and done some proper maths. I never ever saw any documentation coming out. Oh, no, we, we've, we've, yeah. we've hired uh, consultants to do this. We have uh, Strand as well, uh, you know. Yeah, we should board. mention John. I will. Like John is brilliant. Roz is just sensational as well. You know, and, and they've been helping us with the, with the hard data as such. But at the end of the day, the European telcos have done it because all the CEOs are not, they're not getting their bonus on this. Whereas if I was on the board of a, of a, a European telco, I'd be saying, CEO, get this and I will give you an extra 10% on your bonus. But they don't think like owners. And, you know, the business, the telecoms business is bollocksed everywhere because there's low returns on capital employed, 2 3%, you know, capex at 18 to 20%. And there's then the, the, the shortness of the techno- technology life cycle. So 3G, 4G, 5G, yeah, 6G. Now they're talking about 6G. Yeah. And, you know, if Europe wants to move forward, they need 5G everywhere. But the operators just can't afford to do it. There's four operators in every country. Even in Luxembourg, there's four. I mean, think of that in the name of Jesus. That's mental. (laughs) Okay. And then all the regulators and the commission saying, you can't merge, you can't merge, you can't do this. But, you know, in reality, if you have two mobile operators and they're knocking the shit out of each other, that's better than four under capexing the market. Yeah. I mean, is that potentially a, a better way of solving it? That they just we have this mishmash. Uh, it's both, it's you know, both, because yeah. nobody wants you, you know. Okay, you you talk to your granny and say to her, um, uh, "Granny, you should buy shares, put put it in your pension in telecoms companies," and she's going to ask you a couple of questions, which would be common sense: is what returns are they getting? Are they growing? Yeah, zero zero. Yeah, yeah. Now, in the merging world, in the in the developing world, in the Caribbean and Africa, then you've got a whole other set of problems, okay? That is the cost of capital, 15% in the world we live in today, uh, and you high regulatory fees, you know, and high taxes, and you can't write off your interest costs in each of the countries because none of them have a capital markets where you can actually borrow money. Right. So there's a whammy, 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 and double whammy. Okay. Right. So, so you know, there, there. So you know, and no, none of the European operators are owned by an individual except the guy from Wham, who's a brilliant fella. Can't remember his name, but the rest of them are owned by basically big corporates, big PLCs. So they don't think like owners. Okay. So. Yeah. Like, I've been going to the UN broadband meetings every September and then somewhere else during the year, and. I've been saying, hey, you, we need to start getting OTTs and big tech to give us a revenue share. I even yep. invested in an ad blocking business in Israel that didn't quite work out. Okay, The technology just wasn't good enough and I was going to put it into the Caribbean. But, you know, at the end of the day... That was, sorry to butt in, the, ad, the, the strategy being that the ad blocking was like a threat. Yeah, we were going to put it into our network. And say, ad block. we're going to turn this on if yeah. you don't play ball. Yeah, yeah. Right. But it, the technology wasn't good enough, right. okay? Like it was leaky. Okay. All right. A great Australian entrepreneur. But at the end of the day, like now you have 
everybody beating the drum, okay? Well, lo lots of really quality people. Jose Maria Palete, the woman in Vodafone, the CEO of Orange. But they need another 120 of them to start really beating the drum. And they've been lazy fucks. They should have got out of bed earlier and spent an hour on this every day for the last year. And then we wouldn't have this thing where Thierry Breton had to park it for the next commission. Yeah, so it's, it's in, the mid-2020. It, yeah, it's going to yeah. go to 2025. So, yeah. I want to... Um, I definitely, before we move on to other stuff um, that you're interested in, I, I reckon we, could, we should um, fully thrash out this fair contribution thing. And as you said, you work with uh, John and, and Roslyn at Strand Consult, yep. and it was through John and Roslyn that we got introduced to you. So yep. they get a shout-out most pods, which uh, which which <laughs> saddens amazing. me because it, it's going to just boost John's ego they're, even they're more. But here you go, John, here's another. Posh and Becks of Telecoms. Yeah, Posh and Becks of Telecoms, there we go. But yeah, they introduced us to you, so I'm grateful to them for that. And and I know you get involved with them. And so I'm kind of slightly primed on the fair contribution argument, not just because we've written about it, but because I've argued the toss with uh, John and Roslyn before. In fact, we've had them both on the pod earlier on this year, mm. Roslyn right at the start of the year. And I've got some devil's advocate positions that are to push against your arguments in favour of fair contribution, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. And you seem like an ideal person to test them on. Um, I, it, I, I recently wrote in a story, actually, um, Strand Consult got a, a nod on that. My, my headline last week was, US moves to make big tech contribute to um, broadband network costs. And this is a bipartisan bill in the States that you might be aware of. Broadband, broadband. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, and then I said, I said at the bottom, um, I gave a nod to Strand Consult and extracted some of. This was from one of their research notes. Extracted some of that, and this sums up some of my devil's advocate positions. So I'm just going to read myself here, um, and then, and then encourage you to respond to them. I said, well, we defer to Strand Consult's expertise on the matter of the difficulty faced by the USF, that Universal Fund in the states. Um, we don't follow the logic that it falls on perceived beneficiaries of the internet to solve this problem. The US government repeatedly demonstrates it can access apparently limitless funds for other strategic pro projects. And in this case, the quote, market-based principle, close quote, seems to simply be a new tax. And then the other point, and then I'll shut up and let you respond. Um, as I said, it also remains disputed how much direct cost on network companies can be attributed to content providers. Surely the capex associated with rolling out fixed networks is flat and unaffected by subsequent traffic volume. So those are the two points. If if there is a if there's a, a an investment crisis within telecoms, why does it necessarily fall on big tech to resolve it as opposed to the state or other interested parties? And secondly, how much can we and you've already alluded to the fact that you think you can, but how, how can we prove that there's direct cost um, uh, generated by carrying all this traffic? Okay. okay, let's take the first one. Well, first of all, why has the United States government put all this money into broadband? It's because there's a deficiency there of investment. Yeah. Because, you know, Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile don't have the CapEx available to go everywhere. So now they've basically subsidized all these smaller operators that have come into the market to provide broadband. That could be fixed wireless on 5G or using other spectrum, but also rolling fiber out. So the government had to do that because the other guys just couldn't afford to do it. And if you look at, you know, the scale of America with 340 million people, you can see why the last... Yeah, 70 or 80 million is a problem, okay? And then you have, you know, the say the Navajo Nation that people can't afford broadband where the government is subsidizing.
convincing, you know, people buy $34 a month for that, okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, is that Netflix can smell in a network where they can go high def. So they will pull the bandwidth and make it bigger, their demands, by actually making the consumer a high def user, okay? So if you look at the amount of terabits going through the networks in these new networks, for example, it's going up by 25 to 30%. That costs money to the operator to keep building that capacity. So, so that's why, if you could just expand on that a little bit, because Ian and I have often argued the toss about this. Um, you know, I figure you roll out some fiber. Yeah. And there's a hell of a lot of ceiling on the capacity of that fiber that some you roll out. Some of it wires, though. A lot, a lot of it is wireless. You know, a lot of the these new rural broadband networks that have been subsidised, they're agnostic. You know, the government are giving them money either for wireless or for, for actually laying fibre in the ground, okay? So, you know, it's a it's a way to surge the market is using FWA. Okay, but do you, do you concede my um, assertion that if you're talking about fibre alone, I mm-hmm. totally take your point about FWA, anything mm-hmm. wireless. If you're talking about fibre alone there is enough capacity innate in the fiber rollout such that Netflix going high def you should still be comfortably accommodated by that fiber. Not necessarily, because then, you know, people have underestimated how to scale their networks. They have to go back and scale them up another time, and they probably will then underestimate it again, and they'll have to do it again and again and again. And that's the nature of this, where we're going. So this is like the different generations of PON, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, right. and then, you know, you you've whole series of new services and products coming out at any one time. So, I, I, you know, if you go back to the basics here, Netflix, you know, was a video business, like, they, or sorry, a, a, a DVD business. Yeah, blockbuster And they, they yeah. sent DVDs out using the US Postal Service and whatever they paid for that, maybe, you know, Two dollars or each way or whatever it was, they had distribution costs. Yep. Then, very cleverly, you know, to to their credit, they said, "Hi, we now we should just throw this over a broadband network." Yeah. Okay. Or Doxus three. Okay, and see how that goes. And suddenly, it transformed the business. Okay. Mm. Now they had distribution costs. Now they have no distribution. Yeah. Fair so in the name. Mills. But server, uh, but server, like you can buy a server for Dell, you know, mm. for fifty grand. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, or a hundred grand or a million, whatever scale you want. Yeah. But it's cheap. Yeah. In reality, but okay, in millions. I, I yeah. The other, I mean, you must have heard this in, in conversations you've had with regulators, because the other sort of devil, devil's advocate point that would be made is having the consumers already paid for this connectivity. They've paid those those delivery fees and. Aren't the uh, through know, their subscriptions through their subscriptions and then and then from yeah, the but, think, but it was an unlimited pipe. Now the pipe is getting they, they're drawing much more capacity and need more and more capacity and greater speeds. You know, but, but could that be fixed with a pricing change by the operators themselves? But, but why should the consumer pay more at the end of the day? I mean, most most cable TVs or fiber companies try to get inflation like three or four percent a year. Yep. Okay, but that's never going to cover their costs in terms of the the increased bandwidth and the capacity. But why should Netflix have free distribution? I mean it's a it this is the best business model in anybody has ever seen. Like Google, Facebook, none of them pay any distribution cost to anybody. But furthermore, okay if you take Africa, okay, 
Facebook's revenues come out of Africa directly from the buyer of the advertising. They don't go through an office or a branch office in Nairobi, you know, or, or any city in, in, in or any, they don't pay local taxes, they don't pay corporations taxes, and go straight out of there to a, a data center in Ireland, okay? Right. So the whole of Africa is being defrauded in my mind, okay? Because we have 50 data centers in Ireland that are doing Google, Meta, TikTok, you know, everybody, okay, handling their revenues. And they, they don't contribute any money, any taxation dollars whatsoever to Africa. Now, this is the second wave of colonialism. Right. Now, that's, okay. that's an interesting part. I mean, presumably, you've seen some of that in the, in the Caribbean. Yeah, region. but, you know, in the Caribbean, if you just take Haiti alone, okay, yep. where Meta generates, you know, millions of dollars in advertising, okay, people buy it directly, okay, the health service for 11 million people has a budget of $230 million, okay? Right. They don't get any revenue or taxes from Meta or Google or anybody else. But the same could be in Malawi, Burundi, Mali, any of those countries, okay? They pull all the revenue directly out of there to a, to a tax benefited yeah. place, frank the deal in a data center, because 50 data centers for the size of Ireland, and basically they pay nothing to those countries for their health service or education. So... You know, the last big thing that happened to Africa was the Millennium Debt Campaign, which solved a lot of the problems where governments were overborrowed and they got their their borrowings written off effectively, and that money was supposed to go into health and education, okay? So that was the change, the catalyst in the late 90s and early 2000s to change Africa, which Bono did, okay, yep. and, and, and Pettifer and many others. But, you know, now, now that those countries have kind of reduced their debt to GDP, they're earning nothing out of big tech because big tech have told them to fuck off. You know, you have the mm. benefit of Facebook in your country, but we're not going to give you any revenues. So uh, Zuckerberg is hiding, okay? I'd love if Zuckerberg was right there, and, you mm. know, and I'd ask him, well, how does that work? How is that a good idea? Okay, but the the other thing that is happening is that the CEOs of these tech companies were elevated by Obama, okay, and they suddenly took on puffed up, puffed up, and started taking machineries of state security people, you know, and suddenly if they were coming into a country, the red carpet was going to be thrown out far and wide for mm. them. I'll give you a laugh. Uh, there's a guy. There's a guy who drives for me in Dublin when I'm out in the piss. Okay, <laughs> and his name is Paddy. God, that'd be handy, wouldn't and it? And I met him about a year ago, and I said, "Paddy, how are things?" He says, "Fucking brilliant." And I said, "Why?" He says, oh, "I was sent over to London last week to be trained." I said. Trained in what? He said the CEO of XYZ was coming to Dublin and I had to make sure the air condition was on at 21.5. Oh, the water was God. chilled to this temperature. Prima and the pillow had to be in a certain shape oh in the car on the way in from the airport. Well, we recording. You and when he was around in Dublin. I said, and he says, it was fucking brilliant. I got a per diem of 150 quid in a day for being over there for the training. <laughs> Right. So all of these plutocrats basically think they are Obama. 
and they 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 are completely un, out of touch is, with is reality. Is the tide turning now? Then do you think? I think you, they, you they're being. Dis- saying, yeah. I think they're being dismantled. Right. And certainly the Senate hearings. A standard oil type thing. Yeah, the Senate hearings have done a lot. Mm. You know, uh, and uh, what's that Senator Mark? What's his name? Like he he unravelled them pretty badly. Right. The. That's interesting, actually. That's, that's a bit of a tangent. I know, sorry. No, no, not at all. We're all about tangents. Um, because one of my one of my bugbears, one of my tangents that I indulge myself on in, in my writing and on the podcast is like civil liberties and freedom of speech and that sort of thing. And a hell of a lot of digital free speech issues are, are largely mediated by big tech, of course, because that's where most of the speech happens. Um, it, which is what, um, in some ways, made the, the the Musk Twitter thing intriguing to me, at least his stated aim. Um, but one he regrets it now. Well, he doesn't. He says he doesn't. I mean, in terms of money, it's clearly a bad deal. But if you listen to him, but when he, he, was, he owes the banks like fifteen bill. Yeah, yeah, but he's got it and zero cash flow. Yeah, no, it's, there, there it, is a problem. Oh, it's, got, it's got worse in the last couple of weeks. Houston, there is a problem. No, there's, Starlink, there's a problem. There's, there's no doubt. As a pure business deal, it's very, very bad. But if you take him at face value, and obviously you cannot, um, when he was on Rogan recently, for example, um, he was going, you know, he, he did it for higher reasons. Like, you know, I mean, he, he gets slightly highfalutin and talks about saving humanity and that kind of stuff. But he, it, it, <laughs> but he, he genuinely, I, I believe him when he says that he believes that having a healthy public square, a digital public square is very important and that's why I did it. But that's not the I agree not, I agree with him there. Yeah. yeah. And like he he is an absolutely brilliantly talented entrepreneur. Like yeah. you know, the the mere fact that he can that. send rockets up in the air and bring them down again you know is mean? like that that is sensational. At the same time revolutionized cars uh, and everything. Into, yeah. 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 Um but but one thing that interests me in in this whole freedom of speech tangent is and this, this is this is what you just said that made me think of it, is there is increasing symbiosis between big tech and big government, especially the US government. And where I observe it most, because this is my this is just what happens to be what really interests me, is on the matter of speech. Um, funnily enough, Musk, uh, there's another Musk reference, he, he enabled this thing that I wrote up quite extensively called the Twitter files towards the start of this year, where it was quite clear that there was a direct line between American security agencies and people like Facebook and Twitter and so on, telling them what telling them what to censor and what not. And so it's this symbiosis that really interests me, and that comes back to what you were touching on. I think this symbiosis may come into play in the area we were talking about, which is the fair contribution. In other words, we've got these Senate hearings, we've got, them, we've got the antitrust stuff, we've got people going after them. I think a lot of this antitrust stuff is basically a bargaining position where they establish that, look, we can either hold you over the coals over antitrust... Or you can play ball with us, censor according to what we want, and maybe maybe play ball on the. But how do you know they're not playing ball already? Well, they are to some extent, but yeah. this gives this gives government maybe, yeah. the state more leverage over them. Look, you 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 could you could be right there. Um, you know, I, I know this much: the State Department will support uh, Google and Facebook uh, in trying to stop fair share. Okay, definitely, and you know. And the trade discussions between the European Union and America, probably, you know, they, they, that has touched on that as well. No doubt. And I know in the Caribbean, and, you know, probably this is justifiable, is that the U.S. Embassy are probably making representations on behalf of U.S. big tech companies. And that's normal as such. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, yes. So, and and you say that you say that the US is likely to um, uh, support big tech over that. But then there's this story I just alluded to that I wrote uh, at the end of last week, which I was alerted to by that Strand Consult research note, where where this bill um, is basically saying that big tech should contribute, albeit this is in a this is in a sort of ring-fenced way, yeah. should contribute to the cost of rolling up rural broadband in the States. Yeah. But the underlying principle they're saying... But not is, in Europe. Yeah. But the underlying principle, what they're saying, or maybe this is just an over-extrapolation on my part, is they're saying that in this case, we are in favour of fair contribution. Well, yeah, but, well, they may say that, but when it comes to it, what will they agree to? Mm. It's very well, all very I agree with you, and then saying, "Well, I'm not sure I agree with you fully enough to actually give you what you're looking for." But I think this this move undermines, you know, if Terry Breton ever gets his shit together enough to confront the US directly over this, yeah, as he seems to, especially with Vestager off joining a bank or whatever, he seems to be. Thank God. <laughs> oh, you're not a fan. No, um, he seems to be. Um, uh, I hope it's a bank somewhere far away. Well, it, no, it's it's the. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. it's the European Investment Bank. It's the oh Jesus, okay. Yeah, well, she, I mean, she hasn't got it yet, but she's in the running for that. But anyway, while she's while she's doing that, Breton seems like the most powerful commissioner. Yeah, um, and and he could go to them. Uh, I won't do a shitty yeah. French accent, but I think there will be there'll be different versions of fair share. Yeah, in the United States, in Europe, in the Caribbean, and in Africa. So, you, are you hopeful that it's oh, coming? Oh God! Oh yeah, definitely yeah. I'm bouncing out of bed in the morning now because I know this is going to happen. And why are you so keen on it? I mean, you've touched on some of the things about the industry. Because it's, going to, save the, it's going to save the industry, but more importantly, it's going to close the digital divide, okay? Where, you know, between two and a half and three billion people don't have access to broadband in the developing world, primarily Africa. Right. And they will never get it, okay? And... You know, it's just going to be an impossibility unless there's going to be fair share. So, so if you take, you know, Meta is getting $5 ARPU a month out of Africa. Most African operators are probably 5 or $6. So they get the same money. And Google are getting $15 out yeah, of Africa. And they're not having to... And they're not paying a penny. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, this has to change because the, the, the we're talking about market failure otherwise, and we're talking about the telecom sector being uninvestable. Right. It's just a bad, shitty investment. One so, thing, so um, in a way, it's a good ahead. investment, because if this is coming, then no, it's, it, well, time. it's time you, to get in. You, you, you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah, if, if you believe it. I believe it, okay. Yeah. Um, but it's very difficult to get analysts to believe that. Yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about the Caribbean. Yeah, Go ahead, mate. yeah that's fine. Well, I, think no, we've I, was done just, this I was just—I mean, you, you were talking. You, you alluded to you're your sort of going into Jamaica, and then it, it moved out from that. I'm guessing in the early years of the century is when you started to go into yeah, other, other countries. I mean, what's the experience been like there, though? Because there's been some challenges. I'm, I'm sure in that area. Yeah, well, you know, the minister in Jamaica, for fiscal reasons, but also probably from competitive reasons, wanted to bring mobile communications. So they got forty-seven half a million, which was huge. Isn't it? The minister was Philip, Minister Polwell. But then all the other countries in the other islands said, hey, you know, if Jamaica's doing this, we better do it. So St. Lucia, you know, Grenada, Trinidad, Haiti, everybody else started issuing licenses like really quickly, like breakneck speed. So in when we arrived into Jamaica, there was 3% penetration. We passed cable and wireless within a couple of months. Okay. 
This was there was quite a lot of investment in fiber at the time, wasn't there? By Digicel, we did we did a lot of fiber, but yep. mainly it was towers at the okay. time because it was two G, yep. then three G. We should, we, should yep. say we haven't said it overtly for for listeners who who aren't familiar with you that the name of your operations in the Caribbean is Digicel. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we were trying to obviously keep. We were getting equipment at that time from Nortel. Then we moved to Ericsson. And now we're with ZTE and Huawei, okay. But we had to build out all these countries all in one go. So it was, you know, it was a very fraught period for about five or six, seven years. And then we expanded that period, that fraughtness into the Pacific Islands where we sent a team out there as well. So, you know, I had started in Ireland in a telecom business called ESAT and I just took maybe... 80, 100 managers out of there because they all wanted to come and come for an adventure and I just sprinkled them all over the Caribbean yeah. and then Caribbean managers Caribbean. then Caribbean managers took over right. and basically we're basically a Caribbean run country now a company now so so we just rolled out 2G everywhere and then we did 3 and then we did 4 okay and and 5G is is 5G we're not doing it because the Caribbean Nine, which is the main copper, the Caribbean operators, have all come together, and we have said to Caricom and the Caribbean Telecommunications Union, "We're not rolling 5G until you do something about fair share." Uh-huh. Right. Because there's no business so case. It's absolutely central. Like okay. 4G was a shocking business case. Right. 5G is a disaster. What What's yeah. happened? Because there's been, I mean, we were chatting about this before we came on, but there's been a debt restructuring and there's been some asset divestment at yeah. Digital. Can you talk yeah. a bit about the details sure, and sure. what's yeah. happened there? Very, very yeah. simple. You know, we were borrowing money. We we, we invested $5 billion. We, borrow, we were borrowing money at uh, 7 7.5%. It's now 15% mm, because right. of what's happened in Ukraine and rates and everything locked down yeah. you know a whole the whole a whole colliding things plus we lost a hundred million of revenues in haiti so you know you you what cannot was that, that was reconstruction uh, no that was because the gourd which is the local currency declined by 60 percent right oh, so and it was our biggest market so it was me i, I could struggle on borrowing trying to borrow money at 15 percent try and mm. make a business out of it or say hey you know we're going to do it debt restructuring for equity and so I, I went to my bondholders and said look here are the keys of the kingdom um, you run the business and then they said oh, no 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 we'd like you involved we're going to give you 10% of the equity and 10% of the 10% options and I've been working with them and they will end up controlling the business in the next month Okay, and, and life goes on but the main thing from my point of view is I don't have to work 12, 14 hours a day anymore so I stepped down as chair, be non-executive. Yeah. And that kind of suits me at my age to do that, you know, and have a bit of fun. Yeah. And, and yes. has the... That's allowed. Yeah. Has, has I mean, the, the geopolitics, because you mentioned Huawei and ZTE, yeah. has, that, has that kind of uh, I think that's caused got, problems that's, at all? Or, yeah, that yeah. is raising its head. You know, um, I had one meeting uh, with Pompeo, who was the Secretary of State at the time, before the last election, in the run-up to, you know, the election, where, you know, he was saying to me that we would have to rip out our Huawei equipment, replace it with, you know, Western uh, vendors. and we'd, Why did he say you had to? Because 5G, they, they saw 5G coming and they didn't want Huawei to be the supplier of 5G to us. What, what was the, there's a sort of implicit threat in that. But why is he saying you've got to? I mean, you're not you're not operating in the US, are you? No. Well, I explained to him that I'm Irish, but yeah. he got that from the accent. 
Um, but he shot I, this Pompeo. I think. I think. I think he kind of mistook that he could actually order us yeah. to do something that would be a massive cost to us. You're talking about a billion dollars probably right. to change out all our networks from Huawei or ZTE. And I just said, I can't do it. Did, did you notice the Western equipment being, because people talk about that price differential, a lot a lot more expensive anyway? I or? don't think there's much of a differential right. now, yep. to be honest with you. But at the time. You know, the problem with the European vendors is they're not good at executing in emerging markets, from my experience. Right. Whereas Huawei are Sense people. Olympic gold medalists <laughs> execution. Yeah. And even in Haiti, where we've been rolling a lot more 4G in this new wave, you know, their warehouse was, was looted. That didn't stop them rolling out the network. Um, you know, they've been shot at. They <laughs> tend to kidnapping. You know, all the other run-the-mill things that happen in Haiti every day, yeah. that didn't stop them. Like, right. Huawei just kept going with the rollout. So, they just delivered. you know, I, I'm not in no way, uh, I'm, no anti, I'm not an anti-Chinese business yeah. guy. I just think Look, you know, this is a particular phase the world is going through. There was a bit of a kiss and kiss up, you know, between Biden and Lee. You know, and, they cleaned up San Francisco. Just for him. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, you know, you know, they they could be on the best of terms in a year's time. But you know, we all have to run our businesses in the meantime. Well, this is this is this is something we often talk about on the pod. I've been. I've been a little bit. How are you doing for a beer, by the way, Dennis? Uh, I'll have another. Thanks. Another beer. Yeah. Um. We, uh, it's obviously central to what we do for a living, the whole Huawei thing, especially as it's played out since about 2020. Yeah. And... Now, Posh is a different view on that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, well... Rather. Uh, yeah, Posh, and uh, with John being Beckham. And, um, uh, yeah, and in fact, both of them have, you know, they're strong. No, yeah, so yeah. We, we've, yeah. we've gone toast to toe with... And with I've John had a debate with him about on, that. On that. Yeah. And, you know... And and we respect each other's views. Yeah. I know I know John's especially um, hawkish on China. Yeah. And and he's got he's got a fairly well developed position on it, which I respect. My my counter position, slightly devil's advocate, but slightly heartfelt, is um, it's twofold really. There hasn't been enough smoking gun evidence of CCP um, direct sort of hacking into Huawei and ZTE kit for my liking, but it could be there. But if so, why haven't they just published it and then we wouldn't have to speculate. And then my other one is just more getting drawn into, and this is what I was kind of intrigued by when you were talking about Pompeo, just getting drawn into US hawkish foreign policy and everyone else, them kind of forcing everyone else to play ball. And that kind of annoys me. I understand they've got a geostrategic um sort of big game thing where they've decided that China is the new geostrategic antagonist and they're doing all sorts of things trying to get them trying to restrict access to chips stop them getting into quantum computing anything that they can I just slightly annoys me when America in my view overplays its hand and appears to bully people and say this is our policy and you better jump on board or else I you know I think there's bullying on both sides okay? right it depends who whose side you're on okay um look at the end of the day we can't in the emerging markets in africa or in the caribbean rip out all our networks because they're chinese 
just to meet, you know, the objectives of, say, the United States. And I've heard all the arguments, okay? And it, it is about the smoking gun. You know, it's a bit like, you know, saying, you know, in the last few weeks, there was an allegation that the Hamas hand, uh, you know, command center was underneath the hospital in Gaza, that mm-hmm. hospital, Al-Sharif or whatever it was called. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we have never seen any evidence yet that Chinese networks have been hacked or, you know, yeah. they're sending information back to, yep. to to Beijing. Who knows? I don't know. But to be honest with you, I'm a business guy. It's a, That's at a different level, okay? Yeah. That's at a geopolitical level. Until you have conversations with Pompeo and he goes... Well, yeah, but I had to explain to him, you know, in the nicest possible way. And, uh, you know... I'm an Irish business guy. I've invested all this money in the Caribbean and the Pacific Islands. I can't rip out my networks because I can't afford it to yeah. meet has, that has requirement. Has it sort of gone away then? Because it sounds like you oh, haven't no, had I, to. I think it's better to start all over again. More pressure. Yeah, more pressure. It. Yeah, more pressure. So, look, you know, we, we, we'll cross that bridge when we when we have to, okay? Yeah. So, but in the US, all the operators that bought Huawei equipment have had the government paid yeah. for them yeah. to rip it out. Yeah. So, it's, they'll have to do the same in the Caribbean because we can't afford it. What's the, what's the right. government's position, the Caribbean government's... Um, they don't really care. They don't really care. Yeah. They yeah. say, you know, they're not concerned about it. It's, it's more like it is in Africa where they, they just want the investment and... Uh, well, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative in, in Africa yeah. and the investment in Africa is a significantly higher level. Right. So I don't think they're going to get the same cooperation in Africa. But, you know, to be fair, in the US, they've now turned their attention. The Biden administration has done some interesting moves in Africa to actually strengthen the engagement. Like even in Kenya, they've just done a trade deal. And then on the other hand, the Kenyan uh, army is going to send a force, a peacekeeping force now to Haiti. So there's there's lots of trades going on everywhere, every day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is that... Go on, Pierre. I'm saying China's been in Africa for a while now. Yeah. Way ahead of the US. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I went down to sort of South Sudan with a bunch of pals of mine maybe seven or eight years ago and we built a couple of schools and we came back a year later to make sure the schools were built and there was a highway. You know, <laughs> there was a mud road the first year we were there. Right. And mm. next thing there was a highway, a tarmac highway into the middle of nowhere, all paid by Chinese. That's Chinese. a big big part of Belt and Road is infrastructure, isn't it? Infrastructure, yeah. 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 And if they don't pay, they just take the ports. Well, yeah. That was that Sri Lankan so does, thing, wasn't but it? But so does, you know, US you know, lender or, you know, sorry, European lenders, yeah. they'll do the same. You know, I mean, if you, if the European Investment Bank lend money to an airport to be built in Africa and they don't pay the money back, you, you, yeah, know, yeah. you know what's going to happen. Thing as a they grab the asset. Mm. You know, that's the way of the world. Yeah. You borrow money, you lose your asset if you can't pay them. Well, this this um, gives me a segue, unless, Ian, you had any other more qu- questions on what we were just talking about. Before I, I, I mean, go. I was just sort of, the, the, what Scott was talking about, this kind of tech war that's going on between China and the U- US at the moment, it's obviously difficult for uh, business people to try and work Navigate. out what they're doing in all of that. But do you, do you see it, I mean, how do you see it playing out? And, and do you think it, it's realistic for the US to think it can sort of constrain China's ability to do some of these high-end chips and and, and this and this sort of thing. I, you know, I think it will change again, and 
I think, the, you know, there was a rapprochement in the last 10 days by President Xi and Biden in the relationship. Yeah. And, you know, there also is a lot of U.S. companies moving their supply chain and their manufacturing out of China. That has serious implications because if you take, you know, 18 to 25-year-olds in China, 20, 25, 30% of them are unemployed. So, you know, there needs to be more investment job creation in China, and that is going to be led by Western demand for products. Yeah, as such. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, obviously, if Trump gets back into the White White House next year, then things will even change more radically. Yeah. So in so, all sorts of directions. In all sorts of directions. Yeah. So so and then the European Union. It's very difficult to get a uniform foreign policy on trade policy within the European yeah. Union because there's four or five countries that are you know, not agreeing with the other bigger with bigger countries in the EU. So it's it, everything is kind of fraught. And if you're in a boardroom of a business or writing on on the industries that you guys write on, it's my geez, it's moving at a mm. breakneck speed. Gives us something to yeah. do, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. It's also very interesting. Yeah, it is. You know, it is very interesting. And and you, you can argue both ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I kind of I haven't been um working in telecoms as long as Ian and you know this job opportunity came up nine years ago to be editor of telecoms.com. And, and prior to that, I, I was in sort of tech, but I was an analyst dealing more with the smartphone industry. Yeah. So everything to do with networks and stuff was new to me. And, you know, looking back over the last nine years, I'm so grateful that this happened to be the opportunity that presented itself because I've never been a dull moment, that's for sure. Oh, like it's a thriller. Yeah, the, but the other, the, one of the things, you know, we didn't mention is that the U.S. doesn't have an Ericsson themselves. They used to have Lucent, but they sold, allowed it to be sold. So, you know, they have different pieces of the jigsaw. Yeah. And in some ways, maybe the U.S. government needs to fund a new manufacturer, basically. Well, that's one of the reasons they, they've got um, such a big thing for Open Run. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I suggested to Pompeo as well that he should buy Ericsson. Right. You know, it's owned by the controlled by the Wallenberg. Wasn't there? Pardon? There was talk. There about was the talk about that. You no, know, and I, yeah. I sent him a whole pile of stuff on, you yeah. know, the structure of the business. Because, yeah. And at that stage, Ericsson probably would have loved to have sold. You know what I mean? But buy but, what? I mean, buy, buy the, the whole state. shooting. Buy no. Buy the, uh, buy Ericsson, not I mean, Sweden. I mean the US. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Now they're getting carried away. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, have, yeah. we'll have, we'll have, they didn't want to buy Greenland. We'll have age. fucking Luxembourg for pudding. Um, they never buy Ireland. No, I was saying, does the US state buy Ericsson? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not are aware they, of that. Well, are they, they ring Sequoia up? Are sort? they ring they KKR they up and say, right, "Okay, go and buy this, and we'll give you soft yeah, money, yeah. Well, there was OPEC that, money"? There was that tie up between Cisco and Ericsson, wasn't there? At one stage, it didn't really go anywhere. But people were speculating yeah. on Cisco buying them at one point. I think, no, yeah, it, effectively it, it, been a US company. So, yeah, well, yeah. you know, Ericsson is a kind of national champion for Sweden, but I'm yeah. sure yeah. you know money talks, and you know Indeed. there could have been OPEC money in behind it. You know, and they could have funded venture with the big guys to buy Ericsson, no problem. Then it would have been a US company. Do you, do you think Indeed. the consolidation in that market? Because you were saying we, we used to get from Nortel, you know, there were all these guys at one stage, and now there's three it was bad ones. It went, went too far. It was really bad in my mind. Yeah, right. And the 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 Chinese hit the ground running like Usain Bolt. And they got so much business so quickly, but they executed well. And then Ericsson just couldn't keep up with them. Yeah. Now, now Ericsson's a different company and is keeping up and doing really well again. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and then if you take um, uh, Nokia, 
you know, they're behind them. You know, I mean, my experience of Nokia has been not so good in the last couple of years because they, they're doing a, a, they've delayed a network upgrade in our business in Papua New Guinea, which I sold to Telstra, and they were involved in the French West Indies doing a joint network upgrade with Iliad and ourselves, our sharing a network. It's shambolic. Those are mobile. Products, These are mobile are networks. So, right. but you know, Ericsson is a different animal than it was, and they've they've kind of learned the hard way how to execute. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. At home seems to have done a decent job. Who? Boyer at home, the yeah. CEO. Yeah. 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 I think their big problem at the moment, because they're both obviously have not had good years financially and they're laying off staff, is this downturn, which almost seems to relate to what you were saying earlier, that we're not going to invest in 5G and 6G unless we can find a way of creating yeah. revenue growth from, yeah. from the industry. So it, it kind of ties back to this whole argument about things like fair share and what well, you we see, about, we, you know, know, it's unsustainable for the, the industry to keep putting 18 to 20% of CapEx, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, into network upgrades and transitioning to new technology all the time. So, uh, like, you know, some everybody's looking at ways at cutting their CapEx, not spending more money, it's Indeed. reducing their expenditure. Yeah. Which is bad news for us, isn't it? Because we want all the people who advertise on our sites to have tons of money. Um, well, okay, they tons of money. They just might have less. Right. Well, they still got some. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna just move things along. If that's all right with yeah, everyone. Yeah, sure. I just wanted to do one more um, talking about you, Dennis. Anyone who listens to this podcast regularly will know how exhaustive I am in my research. And I, <laughs> well, and there's lots of next? lots of sniggering, <laughs> lots of sniggering, because of course I'm not. But I am pro enough to Google Dennis O'Brien. Oh yeah. And it turns out you've got your own website. And and it says, Dennis O'Brien, a firm believer in philanthrocapitalism, which I'm quite pleased at being able to pronounce well into my second well tin. Done. And then there's a quote from you on the homepage of your website, which is dennis-obrien.com. Um, the model of capitalism has to change. If you want to build a sustainable business in an emerging market, you've got to fund impactful community projects, particularly in education. So, Dennis, could you just expand on philanthrocapitalism, which is not a word that I hear that often, and to some people would sound almost self-contradictory, but obviously not to you. So just tell us a bit more about that and the context okay. of it. Well, you know, if you, t if you invest in poorer countries, you know, it's all very well putting the investment in and employing people and creating a service, but you also earn profits, and you earn pretty good profits, okay, historically particularly. Mm. In a country like Haiti, which is very impoverished, it kind of just didn't sit well with me for us to make a whole pile of money in Haiti without doing something in return. So we started, you know, prior to the earthquake in 2010, we started to build some schools. We built about 10 schools. Then we discovered with the earthquake, we couldn't guarantee that they put enough steel in those schools. So we went back and redid them a second time. To make them more earthquake proof. Yeah. And then, right. and then from 2010 to now, we built 198 schools all over all over Haiti. Because when that's we, is that Digicel? Digicel. Yeah. Um, so we, we just decided that... We want to be seen as somebody that is active in the community and doing something back in return, being a big company in Haiti. And, you know, th this, you know, we have about 70,000 children going to our schools. We were doing teacher training. We, we, we have a process where the local community, many women apply to us, please build a school, then we will do an assessment, and then we'll go ahead. If, you know, if we're happy with the governance that they can run the school, 
and then the government will put in the teachers, but then we train the teachers. So this is all about metrics and making sure that the children, when they do their state exams, get the best results in the country. Yeah. So it's soup to nuts, basically. And we've done that in Haiti. Oh, that just came up on a podcast the other day, soup to nuts. And they were like, where the fuck does that come from? I don't know <laughs> and, either. And it's they, an Americanism. It's, um, <laughs> Sounds good, though. It's, it's apparently all the courses. Is it? Okay. Um, I mean, I don't often finish a meal on nuts. I don't know about you. <laughs> no. But apparently that's where it comes you from. You might go nuts after a few, though. Well, there we go. Yeah. Metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what they're referring to. Uh, but that's apparently what it is. You start with super and end in nuts. So that's what so the... we've done blowing smoke up your ass. Now we've yeah, yeah. Nuts. Oh, that was really nuts. And you don't finish your dinner with mushrooms either, I'm sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not unless it's a very special dinner. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry for butting in. That yeah. just, uh, just suddenly so, about so that's, you know, it, that's what we've done in Haiti. And, you know, and, you know, basically through all of this unrest, people have not really, okay, we have lots of staff kidnapped and members of their family kidnapped, but our business has not been attacked, thank God. Right. Have, have you seen, have you sort of seen measurable um, outcomes from that that you can... That you consider all, all, all the time because you yeah. know we we have a whole team in our business in Haiti that is monitoring outcomes, monitoring the quality of the education that children are getting and teacher training on a continuous basis on, on a residential basis. Yeah. So it's not about building buildings necessarily, although these buildings are really like they're for six hundred kids. They're well. There's latrines. There's showers. There's there's a, there's a, you know a cage kitchen. You know there's a whole you know the library. There's internet connect. So modern, modern, modern schools. But at the end of the day, you need the teachers to be of a very high standard. And unfortunately, when we started this program, we found that. The teachers themselves had been only educated to, say, grade three in secondary school. Right. And so, you know, that you then have to upskill the teacher so that they can really do their job properly. And we've been working on that. Has, has the kind of talent uh, issue been a, a, a challenge in terms of just going in and running a network operator in these Because I know you said yeah. you took some people over from... You know, from, we did from, from Ireland, Europe, yeah, and the Caribbean. Trying to find the people there that have the skills to run a, a business like that is... Our... Yeah. our total ma- uh, management team in Haiti is Haitian, or all of them are Haitians. Right. And they're extraordinary. You know, when President Moyes, for example, we have a weekly uh, sales call on Friday at three, and the CEO came on and said, look, you know, um, we're going to hit the quarter. And this is like a couple of days after President Moyes being murdered in the presidential palace. And I said, oh, uh, JP, I said, just hold it there. I said, you said, look, you know, I'm sorry what has happened, you know, with your president and you don't need to, you know, think that this call is all about sales when you have other things going on. And, you know, if you can do the quarter, great, but, you know, make sure your staff are safe and, you know, you can run the business. Yeah. Yeah. The um, the thing that, that interests me about this this sort of neologism, this portmanteau of, um, of philanthrocapitalism, is at a perhaps superficial or at least binary level, it can feel contradictory mm. because there's philanthropy, mm-hmm. fine, and and it's, you know, I'm always delighted to hear that people of means mm. enjoy um, uh, using their position and their resources mm. in, in, in philanthropic ways. That's mm-hmm. great. No one wants to think of Scrooge McDuck just sat on top of a pile of money rubbing his hands together. 
Um, and obviously all of us who who feeling a bit skint just bitterly resent really rich people anyway in the standard human way. Um, but but then capitalism, and capitalism is very, you know, it's, it's a very sort of sketchy word, but as most people understand it, it would be a free market. It would be companies, let's say public companies, where they have these fiduciary commitments. They, but basically, it's all about profit. It's all about the bottom line. And so the two things, doing something philanthropic and looking after the bottom line and looking after investors and looking after your fiduciary responsibility would seem to be in direct tension with each other. Do you? No, because you, you're consumers. In our case, the users of Digicel in Haiti will have a better opinion of us and they're more likely to become a customer and not leave you. And, you know, that that's not necessarily the reason why we're yeah, doing yeah. it, you know. But, and the, the other 5% reason is there isn't an Irish embassy for a couple of thousand miles. So you're playing a home from home. You're an Irish investor in Haiti, which is kind of a bit odd. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're saying, well, you know, I, I want to make sure I have a good relationship in this country. I want to have a good relationship uh, uh, with our customers as well. And, you know, we're going to do the right thing here. So it's, so it's big picture and it's a bit more long-termist, which, yeah. which I, again, I applaud because one of the, you know, I, by, by instinct, I'm small government, low regulation, laissez-faire kind mm-hmm. of person. But you must be favoured than meta than no taxes um, well, no, because no, I don't. That's where, which, that's where this is caveat. Yeah. But this is this is. But it's it's that pull your leg. It's that boundary. No, no, it's yeah, a good, yeah, yeah. good, good retort. Yeah. It's that boundary I like to explore because I'm not an anarchist. Mm. You need a state. I think you need a social safety net. Mm. Uh, my daughter has autism, so I'm grateful for anything the state does to help us to help her. All mm. that sort of thing. Obviously, there needs to be some degree of of a caring, sharing aspect built into society. Mm-hmm. So all all sensible conversations are are you know if if we've got the equilibrium of total socialism or total state control at one end and then total anarchy no state at all at the other end sensible conversations are where the dial is somewhere mm-hmm. in the middle isn't it mm-hmm. um and but uh, philanthropy is at all levels right you know because you, you know people give to their means here in the UK you know they might buy poppies they might support their local autism charity or whatever they give, you know, a quid, five quid, ten quid, or whatever the number is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I suppose there was a realization on my part very early on that, you know, it's not a bad idea to to do to you know to support different things. Okay, so when yeah. we were growing up as kids, my, my mother, you know, had a friend who was a nun, a Protestant nun in India, working with blind people. She used to come home mm. every two years, and she'd come around for dinner. And we'd be all like listening to her for hours about her life in India. And then, you know, there was a priest from Africa, same thing, you know. And basically, you kind of get into it, you know what I mean? And you say, okay, I'll, I'll give a tenor to something that is important to me. And that is, you feel good about that. Yeah. But also, it's impactful because lots of tenors or fivers make up a lot of money that help you know, a whole layer of other social services in the UK, in Ireland and other countries. Cool. I, I think pure, your, your, the sort of pure capitalism has like 
unfettered capitalism isn't anything necessarily that any of us here would go along no. with. Because yeah, it's not a complete Darwinistic dog-eat-dog dog type no. of thing. Talking about the need for, for the regulators to get involved in the telecom yeah. sector, for instance. I mean, philanthro oligopolies, maybe, that really is a kind of... But you know, that you see, you read an annual report, Savion, a load of shite. Of internet, you know, you you read the ESG the, stuff. You know the ESG stuff, and we do philanthropy, and then you say quantified, no yeah, numbers. Exactly, you, you know what I mean. That's they what might, winds me up. They might have given. They might be turning over, uh, you know, ten billion. They give a hundred grand to something. You know what I mean? And, and most that, of that's spent on glossy brochures to show how much yeah, they have. And their PR people spend twenty grand a video. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I'm more interested in having a team in every country that are going to do something that's impactful from beginning to end. Did, did you, you were in Haiti before the earthquake? Yeah. So, and, and then, um, I mean, I'm interested in your perspective, because you must have been on the ground when that was going on. No, so, I was yeah. in Lamo. Right. Uh, but, 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 coming a, in, but coming in and out, I'm guessing. Yeah, no, yeah, I was in, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I've been going to Haiti, I've been there like 100, 200 times, but... Before the earthquake, you know, nobody ever thought, there was never any discussion about earthquake, except, you know, we had an Irish architect who built our headquarters, which was 12 stories high. And he had done some research and he said, we're going to put lots more steel into this building than we ever thought. And I said, are you sure, John? A guy called John Marr. I said, like, fuck, this is going to be two, three million more in construction costs. He says, no, definitely. And thanks be to God because we lost nobody in the building itself. And the, the, the only guy that died was the building manager who got everybody out of the building. Oh, bless you know, him. I, I, and then he was having a fag afterwards, <laughs> about a half an hour, and a wall fell off Shit. in the car park. Or a guy called John Mark, I think his name is. And that was the only person. Now, we lost other staff members because they were at home or they weren't working that day and their homes collapsed. Because if you know Port-au-Prince, there's no steel in any of the houses. Never been. And it's breeze blocks, right. you know what I mean? I can picture it. You know, yeah. so it, um, the other lucky thing, we had only one switch at the time and the switch went out the back of the building but didn't fall out from four storeys. And they were able to put a rope around it and strap it and get it going again so that people who were buried in the rubble were able to use their phones and say where they were, okay? And that, wow. and then we topped up the whole base straight away with 5 or $10 so that everybody had top-up because in Haiti, people top up 50 cents a day yeah. or 30 cents a day, you know what I mean? So it was an extraordinary period. Yeah. Our CEO went to Haiti and slept on a desk for a month. Wow. Sadly, he's not with us. A guy called Colm Delves. He was instrumental in the building of Digicel. But where, you know, having having sort of put a, a sort of simplified version of, of my typical position before mm. you, where where it certainly softens and where I where I meet in the middle with less sort of laissez-faire, less um, unfettered free market is in some ways is the short-termism. One thing that annoys me, you know, covering, obviously we look at quarterlies and, hmm. um, every time they come around and they always seem so short-termist. Hmm. Um, you know, PLCs or, or, or listed companies wherever just seem to only care about the next month, the next quarter, the next fiscal year. Um, and, and sometimes you see this in governments as well. You look at some advantage that governments, that systems like the Chinese have over is is they can plan 
decades in advance because they don't bother with with the inconveniences of democracy and they just got one dude calling the shots till he dies by the looks of it. Or the autumn statement. Which yes, is- which we just had today, I yeah, think. Yeah. And so, so we've got these cycles both in the public sector and the private sector that are very short-term and very condensed. Mm. And now that obviously leads to some great inefficiencies and, and a lack of forward planning and just bigger picture thinking. So that's where I definitely meet in the middle with the stuff that you were talking about. I, I agree. You know, I agree entirely with you. You know, analysts just want to know what the next quarter is. And then they want to know what the cash flow is at the end of the year. Yeah. And what growth you had. Yeah, th- those calls that you have with, um, the, you know, that we, we get on yeah. from time to time. It's it's very, you, you just sense that every single analyst on the call is just looking to plug a number into his spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. To, uh, But also if but, you're a CEO, you know, if you say, well, this is what we're going to do in, in the next five years and you get maybe 60% of things right, you'll get the bollocks chewed off you for the 40 that you didn't deliver. Right, so it's yeah. a thankless task. So it's a bit of a thankless task. And now CEOs are all, it's all short-term, you know, and they're because trying to get the their rewarding their, thing. Their, their, their LTIP or their incentives. What, what What's the hardest market you've ever worked in? I mean, maybe not even just telecom, actually, but, you know, uh, it's, it's, sec- other sectors as well. Happy New Guinea. Right, with telecom. Yeah, yeah, because there's no roads in Papua New Guinea in the th- linking the three major cities. Right. And really? So not at all? Not, yeah. How do people get from one to the other? Uh, they don't. It's right. Stop my, <laughs> Just end stop my, stop my, they go by plane if you're well off. Right. right. So or, or like on a horse or something. Or, yeah, yeah, a horse or whatever, a donkey. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, w- when we were building the network, we had to use heavy lift helicopters to get the steel on top of the mountains. And then... We still to this day, well, Telstra on the business now is refuel a lot of our towers by helicopter, which is massively expensive. Um, but it was a very tough build. Like I had hardy people from the west of Ireland, from Kerry and, you know, some of those places, engineers who would, you know, live in a tent for three months and build a network. And we had you know, hundreds of them, basically. It's amazing how there are some bits of the world, I hate to use words like civilised because that's got lots of baggage attached to it, Um, but there are some parts of the world that in terms of technological development and just development in general have just sort of got left behind. It's amazing. They have, but when they, once they get 5, 4, once they get 4G, they go mad for it. Yeah, I bet. You know, if we open a, a 4G site... that bit more grateful. In, ...in Haiti or PNG, like it's full straight away and then we have to get more capacity. And are those technologies, is that technology pretty much rolled out across the market it, here it, now, well, or is it still... It, it, well, we're, you know, you can't cover the whole of PNG because yeah. it's absolutely massive. And very, very distributed as much. Well, you know, when we when we were rolling out the network, we to, in order to make some sort of a scientific assessment where to build the network because there's no census, we had to hire a plane and photograph where people were, and then they, we'd count them. You know, out yeah. how many people lived in this particular place, and then we say, okay, let's build a tower. So right. you know, I, I mean, the, they don't know the. They say the population's between seven and eight million, but then they recently did work and said it's fourteen billion, fourteen million people. So yep. nobody, nobody really, really knows. And then one v- group of people living in one valley goes over a mountain that could be a five mile walk, wouldn't even meet the next people in the next valley. So you know, it's an, wow. it's a, it's like the Amazon basin at the yeah. turn of the nineteenth century. 
Incredible. It's so remote. Has the, has the bit? I mean, just going back to the sort of big tech, you know, mm. applications that run over the network yeah. issue. But in some of these countries, um, it sounds like big tech hasn't been because there hasn't been infrastructure there before. They haven't been there. But has oh, that provided yeah. opportunities for you to do well, slightly more innovative things? Maybe. Well, certainly we're in mobile money, and you yeah, know right. all those yeah. kind of services, and we have our own apps as well. Yeah, uh, we have our own OTT apps as well. But the you know Facebook, TikTok. They come in. They, they, you know, they they get the customers straight away. You know what I mean. And yeah. it's funny, you know, it, it, because uh, Meta and Facebook don't contribute for fair share. They don't, have, you know, help in the rollout and the financing of networks uh, to the two and a half billion that don't have a broadband access. But their ex growth, basically. They've, they've completely capped themselves. And unless they go for the next layer of people to go cover the whole population in the world today with broadband, they're going nowhere. Yeah. And like Facebook are falling like a knife. But isn't that way in the past, there have been various things. They don't seem to have got anywhere. But I remember writing stories a few years ago about Facebook getting involved in this, that and the other to do with networks. And then you had Google fucking balloons and stuff. Well, they, um, they had yeah. the whole tip involvement, didn't they, a few yeah. years ago? Yeah, but, they, they, yeah. but they had balloons. They called it Loon. Really? Yeah. It was well named. <laughs> Very well named. But, so, and so, then so you had Google Fiber in America. That didn't go anywhere. Yeah. You know. You, you, so, look, you, so two questions about it. Sorry to butt in. Two, just to, to make it specific what I'm curious about. There's two questions in it. Did you ever have any direct exposure to that? And, and what did you think about it at the time? And two, why do you think it hasn't got anywhere? Well, we worked with Loom, believe it or not, in Papua oh, right. Guinea. Okay. And because we, we were on the ground. And look, you know, I, I, you have to say, I, I don't be critical of people of trying things out. Like Musk is the greater, greatest trier out of things. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Loom, you know, okay, it didn't work out. But they, I, I wouldn't necessarily slag them off first. You know what I mean? And we, we, you know, you have to experiment. Like, we can't, I couldn't ex- have a project like Loon, couldn't afford it. You know what yeah. I mean? So somebody has well, to do it. Well, a big part of being an entrepreneur is trying stuff out, presumably. 100%, yeah. 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 And, and, and that's, how we're, how, that's how everything's going to keep developing. Yeah. Okay, and, uh, and why, why do you think that's gone a bit quiet, if indeed it has? Because they're all, you know, well, Facebook have retrenched, you know, because they, yeah. in, in order to keep their profitability up, they've dropped a whole raft of people. Um, and they and got this metaverse thing, they, which yeah, and is Google, kind of slow burner. Google have put a lot of money in AI, so they probably dropped out of some of the other marginal pro- well, projects that they, 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 they had to, you know, get rid of, basically. Yeah. Cool. Well, actually, um, Dennis just set up a little segue there. Can so, I do a quick shout-out first? I forgot at the beginning. Uh, shout-out to Guillermo from Capgemini. Capgemini? Capgemini? Yeah, Capgemini. Capgemini. Yeah, I met him this weekend. He's a listener. Yeah. He, okay, yeah? cool. All right, Guillermo. He sponsored the Ryder Cup as well. Oh, really? Ian, Ian went yeah, over I, there. I went he there. went there yeah. with HPE. I was there, I, I was there on, a, on a bit of a, oh, what do they call it, a junket. Oh, yeah. Do you enjoy it? <laughs> I, I really liked it. I'm not, I, I've never been a big golf fan in yeah. the past, but the guy I was with from HPE is a good golf player. Oh, really? and he was like, this is where we should go, this is where we should go. So we, we yeah. were always in the right spot. A, a business that I'm involved in is an applicant for the 2031 Right, Ryder Cup in in uh, Girona in Catalonia. Okay, called Camaral. Yeah, because there's a huge amount of work that goes into preparing oh, the, the site. Years, there, yeah, and then the, four years. The HPE thing was this is how much Wi-Fi stuff we put up and, yeah. and fiber networks, and they were saying they can't do the fiber roll ever easily in Rome because they've, you run yeah. into archaeology every. They did a good so. job. The connectivity yeah. was very good. Yeah, God, you you got your finger in a lot of pies, isn't it? 
Um, <laughs> hope the pies are too hot, though. <laughs> How's the football going with Celtics? Uh, well, I'm only a tiny shareholder, no. but a friend of mine... Well, so, so you're shareholding? What? What in what Celtic it? football. Oh, is it? I'm, I'm, I'm a little but tiny Pierre shareholder. Yeah, does more research than oh, yeah. I do. <laughs> but Celtic is going well. It's a, like, yeah. it, it's a profitable club. Mm. And keeps which, winning. Which is saying something, yeah, in and of itself. Brendan Rodgers is doing a good job. Yeah. He's doing great. Okay, so um, when you segue, <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. No, my segue that, that you set up, yeah, which you just sort of took the wind out of. I uh, was talking about AI. So, um, you know, we may well come back to to more stuff of, of your direct experience, but but we usually have to chat about a couple of news items from from the week, and one that I've covered this week, and it's you know it's interesting, it's interesting to get the perspective of someone. I can't remember whether I said this while we're filming or, or off camera, but you know, someone who's got, you know, I, I'm an observer. I'm not really a participant in anything ha- that happens at any kind of elevated corporate or or decision making level. Um, and I get the impression that you're certainly far further up the food chain than I am. And I always find it fascinating, whether it's you or anyone else we've had on the pod who's like a CEO or quite senior, to get that perspective. And there's just been a few things that have happened this week that largely seem to concern shenanigans at the top level, um, which I find quite interesting. I don't expect you to have a you uh, like inside perspective on, although if you do, by all means, share it with us. But the first one I'm going to talk about is um, OpenAI, uh, which um, to people who aren't totally familiar with it is the company behind ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, AI AI has been around as a concept for a long time. You know, we often uh, we often joke. It's become a cliche on this pod. We'll talk about Terminator whenever AI comes along, uh, either Terminator or Hal out of two thousand and one, um, or Matrix. One of those three will be the cliches we dip into. Um, but this year, it kind of got it kind of got a rocket up its ass because of generative AI mm. and people being able to interact with. With sure, this computer, I think they released it. Didn't they release it? Yeah, ChatGPT during the summer. Yeah, that was GPT three, and now we've got GPT four. Mm. And I've listened to lots of pods where they go. It's really amazing. You can have incredibly meaningful interactions with this thing. Although one thing we spoke about on the pod on the was pod. times Very when wrong. it went a bit mad uh, and started accusing people of that was the beer though. <laughs> yeah, that was the beer. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, what we don't know is whether the journalist, before they wrote the story, said, <laughs> "Act like you're shit faced in this interaction." I'm going to ask it. Who's Dennis O'Brien? See what he gets wrong. Oh, you're out, you're you're asking GPT. Oh my God, this is live. Oh God. Uh, from a BT, well, former BT, what's his name? Oh, um, Neil. Neil. Yeah, yeah McRae. He had said like he had worked from Amazon, which was completely wrong. Right. Well, this yeah. is one of the problems with it. This is a complete tangent, but um, I'll, I'll pull it back in a sec. You know, it's not it's not really AI. It's certainly not general purpose AI. What it really is is a very powerful way of tapping the internet and and sort of whatever the the sources of the large language model are hmm. to then come up with an answer. So the answer is only going to be as good as its sources are. And I certainly know there've been there was some people I I listened to podcasts on and and they would ask about themselves and you just get this fucked up stuff. It's completely either inaccurate or biased. Or, or or whatever. So we got a long way to go. Anyway, so that was ChatGPT, and that was run by OpenAI. And then um, over the weekend, over last weekend, they just suddenly the board of OpenAI just suddenly sacked its CEO, who's a chap called Sam Altman. Who I think prior to that was more a general VC kind of guy. Y Combinator, I think, was where he's at, which is quite a well-known Silicon Valley mm-hmm. VC firm. I think um, they just sacked him, and no one really. Was sure why, 
they just said, you know, some muttering something about unprofessional this or conflict of interest that or whatever. But it, it Can, lack of candidness or something. There we are. Yeah, lack yeah, of candor. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Really, the you conspiracy know. that he could have done something with the meeting with Elon Musk and Tim Cook and. Oh, right. and what, when they were all getting together to chat about AI over here. They said the timing is a bit weird. He might have had a bad Chinese. It could be as simple as that. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Machiavellian view is that this was all sort of engineered by Microsoft so that it could go in. Well, and, uh, yeah. And, and because it's, because yeah. it's put so much money into OP, it's basically the owner. You know, yeah. Well, that's kind of what, that's kind of what I'm leading up to. Or something. Yeah. yeah. Without meaning to be a, a prima donna, that's kind of where back. my narrative's leading to now, yeah. if you fucking let me finish. <laughs> no, I was just saying, it taps into Dennis's point about the sort of when you, when you mix commercial and non-profit, <laughs> it becomes, uh, he's always like this. Yeah, the more, the more of these. The more of these, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um, so uh, I'm obviously only joking. We, we get on great. It's his birthday. Um, the uh, yeah no, but no. Actually, that, that was my way of going. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Um, and and that was that was what I was just getting to in, in my little leader. Well, I thought I'd sum it up for you. You thought you saved me the bother. That's really kind of you. Thanks, mate. It's really appreciated. Um, and uh, yeah, and so as you say, Microsoft owns like, almost half of it. I think um, due to sort of normal. Well, perhaps not normal, but but the kind of VC investment that that you that you um, associate with these things. And, and my headline yesterday was Microsoft is likely the big winner from OpenAI's implosion. And I'll, I'll quickly th- talk through the timeline of the report yesterday and then the update today. So they got rid of Sam Altman, and then um, Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, went oh, okay. We'll just create a whole new division of Microsoft that's devoted to AI, and we'll and we'll appoint Sam and this other geezer who left at the same time called Dave or whatever. And they look like the whole staff is going to fall. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then the staff yeah, five hundred, and, and then the staff yeah um, sent this letter. It was five hundred and five at the time. I think it ended up being almost like ninety five percent by the end of it. Sent this letter going, yeah, fuck that. Um, to paraphrase. Um, but the stock went down. The Microsoft stock went down when this was happening. It went because Microsoft, yeah. Microsoft had invested something like eleven billion in it. Mm. So it's p- perhaps a reflection of maybe that whole investment being wiped well, that's, out. That's chunk change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. Like Microsoft would have a couple of hundred billion on, on their balance sheet in cash. Yeah. Mm. So, so how I how I summed up. Um, uh, well, a couple of paragraphs I summed up yesterday. I said Microsoft um, has already invested over ten billion in OpenAI, so the spectacular destruction of that investment could superficially be viewed as a significant loss for Microsoft. But as Radio Free Mobile explores, and I link to them because uh, I hate it when journalists don't link to stuff they do, which some don't. The fuckers. Um, the company is already all in on OpenAI, OpenAI, which is in effect a far bigger investment, i.e., how much it's integrated OpenAI into a lot of its other stuff. Um, it seems that no matter how this plays out, Microsoft will secure total control of the talent and intellectual property and so on. Um, and, and a few people have disagreed. And then we got to today where that letter that you just mentioned, Ian, where, where everyone just went, restore, bring Sam and his team back or we'll all leave. They basically just shut themselves and went, yeah, all right, then we will. And so now there's this, uh, my headline today was OpenAI returns to, which is written on the train on the way up here, so it's not necessarily most most exhaustive bit of work. Um, OpenAI returns to the status quo ante, nothing to see here. Because presumably they'd like to restore Sam Altman and go, yeah, we're all fine, it's all, just, just move along now. It's all but the, cool. last, the last bit, the development with them bringing him back is the bit that adds conf- a bit of confusion. Yeah, go on. Right? Well, in the sense that if it is a, a kind of a ploy by Microsoft to to have him within this new division and bring the staff over, then it's it's not yeah, really sort of worked all, out. It can't all. be both. 
Yeah. Yeah. But it's all over. I mean, you know, if if the five hundred staff moved to Microsoft with yeah. him, you know, basically you know, they might put ten, uh, right off ten, eleven billion. Well, that's like but they'll never have to. They'll, they'll never, yeah. you know, under the antitrust laws in America, they were never going to get full control of it. So this is a way of actually getting everything all in one go. I completely yeah. agree. I completely agree. So, to um, so my uh, what is it? My concluding paragraph of the thing I wrote from the train today was: Microsoft's online press room has maintained a stony silence on the matter. Uh, and we're still unable to even load the open AI site, which was true. I can now, mm. but I couldn't then. And that's for about 24 hours. Well, what do people um, value open AI at, at the moment? 86 billion. Apparently. 86 billion. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of what's expected from it and mm. and the fact that Microsoft stock seems to have performed well you know, yeah. in relation to some peers because of open AI, that's mm. not very much. Yeah, I think it really, seems clear. In terms of like, when you talk about Apple being worth 3 trillion these days. But they've decapitated AI, the board. You know, by getting rid of Sam. You yeah. Know. Yeah. And so who's, who and fills then, that vacuum? In nobody. Well, I mean, the, the Twitch I, guy. <laughs> well, I, I think my, my, my assumption is Microsoft does. What about the woman from X? Would she go over? Woman, oh, the one who, uh, Yaccarino. Uh, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Well, they got in some geezer who, who was there for about a day. All right. Um, he was from Did Twitch. Did he get a on Bob? Was he from Twitch? <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's like it's like one of, football, one of those football managers that gets sacked after three games and gets twenty mil. Here's my here's my paragraph. I was trying to find that that summarizes what we were just Sounds talking like about. Matches your nice squad. Yeah, like, yeah. indeed, indeed. <laughs> Um, Chelsea, yeah. I, I said, what this means for the future of the company and Microsoft's involvement is still unclear, but it's hard to escape the impression that Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella has been pulling the strings behind the scenes from at least the point at which Altman was fired. And then just one more. A reasonable extrapolation of that assumption is that the new regime will also closely align with Nadella's vision, effectively giving Microsoft full control of open AI without having to compensate its other investors. What do you Bingo. think of that? Yeah, it's that. Bingo. And you know the mere fact that they're PR people, the Microsoft people are saying nothing. It's saying niche, yeah. It's too high risk for them to say anything. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's over. a fun bit of corporate intrigue. It is, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the complete speculation, given how well it seems to, from my point of view, have turned out for Microsoft, is to what extent it might have been engineered by Microsoft in the first place, but none of us but know, it, and I don't want to get sued it, it, by it, saying anything. But, you know, it, it, what happens then to the private equity guys who put the money in as yeah. well? Indeed. So, and they'll be like the BlackRock types, won't they? Yeah, Sequoia, you know, Something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not sure who their who their shareholders are, but they're heavyweight. So yeah. they're I not people what who their are take this line down. No, they won't. But the complication yeah. is this this weird setup with it being a not for profit, and because easy, the easy thing would be for them to just go and and buy OpenAI, yeah? yeah. If it wasn't, if it was a normal. But he Sam has said all along that he doesn't want to get wealthy out of this, right? You know. But which he's is, a VC guy, isn't he? Which is very altruistic. And well, back to my yeah. point about the tensions therein. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 you it's, sound skeptical. Uh, I, you know, maybe I'm completely wrong, but it's it's going to be difficult if he created that, mm. not to enjoy the benefits of it's it. His as baby. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, were you going to say something? I was. I was. I mean, I'm just kind of, you know, the board issues with. Um, uh, with Sam Altman and what what was behind some of the kind of yeah, uh, yeah we're still not disagreements. sure people don't the really journal know, said yesterday it, the board was not a very heavyweight board right whatever that means yeah so, so better out of their depth maybe yeah 
There was speculation by, I think we were talking about it before we came in, by Daniel Royston, who we've had on the pod. Yeah, about, I couldn't find that on our um, LinkedIn when you mentioned it. But. About um, it being too tied to one cloud and not having a multi-cloud right. strategy. So, so, so we, must, we must allow for Danielle, who's great, but her thing is, is the cloud, the public, public cloud. cloud. Yeah. And so that's going to be her focus of a given. Yeah, but I, I think that's quite... I mean, to me, one of the things that's interesting about generative AI is the relationships with the public clouds, the hyperscalers. Yeah, because you we've chatted about that a lot. You can't run those large language models, from what I've been told by people who know about this stuff. You can't certainly can't train them. It's very resource-intensive. But GCP, AWS, or Microsoft Azure. So... And they and this very close relationship that Microsoft has with OpenAI um, means it's very much a sort of. I mean, from a telco perspective as well, it's interesting when they start talking about using large language models for chatbots for customer service operations, or yep. even to even to support some network operations in future in in ways that we don't really know about yet. It's you're almost going more in with Microsoft than you than you were before, and they. One of the worries in Europe, I know at the moment, is about this, you know, this, you know, how invested do we want to be in mm. in relationships with the hyperscalers? How much do we want to do ourselves? How much mm. do we want to entrust to them? And this is moving things a lot more in that direction. It's, yeah. it's quite scary, I think, in a way. But, you know, five years ago, maybe six years ago, people wrote off Microsoft. They've reinvented themselves. Yes. Yeah, very well. Completely. In a Fair staggering play way. I mean, if you look at their share price, what they've done with Azure, like they, they've really, they've motored. They've done it. They've been able to keep up with all the other people now, you know, all the other big tech. Yeah, companies. for them to reinvent themselves from a and a it's a forty-year-old company shifter. Yeah. yeah, which is sensational. I think for them to reinvent themselves from the Balmer era, which yeah. is something I covered actually when I was a smartphone analyst, the time when Microsoft bought Nokia's handset yeah. operation off them and end up writing off the whole fucking thing. Yeah, well. Um, and then yeah, and then Nadella. No, I mean, fair. There's a price of getting a cavity though for them. You know, it was yeah. nothing. Yeah, right. But their but their reinvention yes, has enough. been their reinvention has it's been, been very much cloud. Yeah. Yeah. and now AI. Yeah, uh, and meanwhile you've got you were talking about Facebook being it does social media. They've yeah. got everybody that can possibly sign up. Yeah, the advertisers are getting a bit sour on them. Yeah, it's like where do they go next? Exactly. The that's, that's the question. I mean, that's to that's, that's where why they need new broadband. The two and a half billion people who don't have broadband in the world today are their next customer base. Yeah, yeah. But TikTok is a better product than than all the other social media. It's certainly got a, in our markets. We just see TikTok surge, all the time. Surge. Right, right. What do you? I, I'll come back to that. But I just I want to just pick up on what we were just talking about before. Um, something Ian and I have spoken about a lot in the pod, which is um, a fear of an over reliance on three dominant public cloud hyperscalers, as people call them. Mm. And it it would seem to at least partially overlap with the the more general big tech thing that we we're talking about earlier on the pod. Um, you know, as as long as you get operators, you know, we, we hear a lot operators moving more and more of their operations into the public cloud, mm -hmm. having a, a more intimate relationship with one or all of the three. Typically one, though, for reasons. Azure, um, we're with Azure. Yeah, Azure, yeah, you're with Azure, right. Okay, mm -hmm. so, you, but but presumably you felt primarily you were choosing between Azure, Google, and AWS mm. when, when you... We were more comfortable with them. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good to know. Maybe you can tell us in a bit why you were. Um but then with it, when this AI stuff comes in, mm -hmm. which requires all this resource and all this processing power and all this backing to, to work properly, and you've got one that's intimately associated with Microsoft, i.e. Azure, you've got Google's got its own one. And Anthropic, then you've got, isn't it now? And then Anthropic's getting AWS. closer. Well, yeah. it's not. 
it's getting closer and closer. It, I think it's standalone Anthropic, but they're, the f- every now and then you hear about a bit more of a tie-in. Well, it's, it's almost the same really thing. But of them, Microsoft is a stronger position. Because right. they're yeah. fully integrated all the way. Yes. With, with OpenAI. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even more than Google, which... which they're, uh, they're way more. I think they're, from what I understand, they're more, much more advanced, way more advanced than Google. Right. So why did you pick Azure? You just alluded to it. Uh, just a better working relationship. We, we do some reselling for them. We have an enterprise business that is maybe 15% of our revenues, maybe $300, $400 million worth of revenues there that we were more comfortable dealing with Microsoft because they're a very strong B2B company. And we, you know, we felt there was a long-term relationship there. And it's gone extremely well for us. Cool. Couldn't have gone better. But do you worry about, I mean, getting back to the big tech conversation, because they are obviously big tech, that it's, yeah. it's a it's a, a, a Well, we, we weren't going that. to give it to Google, to be honest with you, because of their behavior. Right. You know. Okay. Uh, That's interesting. So, you know, but, yeah. you know on merit, yeah. Microsoft won. Hands yeah. down. I mean, I would think that given that concern that you've got about Google, I mean, the other one, AWS obviously has its big, they're a big streamer as well. They would be one of the companies that would be yeah. expected to pay up on the fair share. Maybe Microsoft, not so much. It it puts Microsoft in a nice position. It does, yeah. The, the, if other telcos are, are thinking it, the same it, thing. Yeah, it but, does, yeah. But, you know, they have the better management in, our, in Latin America and the Caribbean than yeah. the other guys. Yeah. And they're better to deal with. Do you, do you worry about, because this whole thing about lock-in and supply dependency has become a bigger issue recently, partly because of geopolitics, but, you know, we talk about this a lot, that yeah. it, when, when you talk to the CTO guys in this space, they're always on about the difficulty of moving stuff out of a cloud and into another one if you had to do it, and, mm. you know, you, you, you go down that road and it, it can be a, a relationship that's impossible to end if you ever wanted to in the future. I think we're in a different situation in the emerging markets. You, you don't have the depth of talent there. Yeah from an IT point of view to make that easy to change. Yeah. You know, so we're trying to minimize that kind of risk. So, you know, developers are difficult to find in the car. You know, there isn't a large community mm. of developers. Yeah. Trinidad, really not kind bad, of goes, Jamaica, not bad. But goes a little bit full circle to your big picture for you on education as mm. well. Yeah. Uh, but but in but in a you know in in a, a developed market like a, a BT doing, I think it'd be different. I think it'd be much different. Well, they're they're quite resistant to the idea of putting their network um, uh, workloads in, in yeah. the public cloud. They've gone there with the IT stuff, but they very much want to have the five G core and other things on their own on their own sort of private cloud. Well, I, I, I think BT, yeah. you know, well, they, you know, they've got open reach to fund. They have a lot of things to fund. They have a pension. Yeah, you know, so you know, every company has different things that they're trying to grapple with like yeah. we're grappling with things bt are grappling with a couple of things as well yeah everybody has something are, are you on the ai front are you sort of starting to i mean perhaps through microsoft is that starting to affect your own operations I, I, we're, we're beginning to you know to think how can we take advantage of this and, and particularly in customer care and other parts of our business yeah by customer care, you mean more on the sort of chatbot chat first box, line of yeah. first yeah. line of I mean, we, contact. You know, chatbox is huge for us. Yeah, you, and it does, it is getting better, way better. Uh, you, I remember sorry yeah. to butt in quickly. I think I've said this on the pod. Uh, uh, like my my oldest friend was once chatting to me about uh, a customer service interaction they had, and they were like, "Yeah," and, and this bird was going this, that, and the other. And I was going, "Mate, you were talking to a fucking robot," <laughs> and he's going, "He's going, fuck off." 
he just wouldn't have it. <laughs> now that and I was, I was like, look, there's no way in this day and age at that first level of call center that you were not. I think it was like a, you know, like a, a, a yeah. text chat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's no way that wasn't a robot. And but she was very quick at typing. <laughs> well, but but this is but this is this is the point of the anecdote. Other than it's funny of its own right is. Um, it is getting better, thanks way, to things like better, chat GPT better. and all that sort yeah. of thing, such that even if I know, because I'm a tech journalist and so it's sort of my job to know about these things, that maybe I'm chatting to a robot, so maybe I won't be like, what are you doing later? Or something. Well, Not that yeah. I would, Google, ever. Google a few years ago had the demo where the it's a voice and it has like ums and stuff. Yeah. Mm. Like, whoa. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's, it's all very... Um, so When you, you think of how much we all spent in the telecoms industry on customer care... Yeah, mm. and how that has yeah. shrunk, and the number of people employed has shrunk sadly. Yes, you know, but I think the rest of the business, like, you know, is going to most telco operators are probably going to shed forty percent of their jobs yeah. because of technology. In, 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 in tracks outside, that closely. outside customer yeah. care, yeah. yeah. But th this is the thing that worries me about AI. And I was, I was, I was in Finland actually, like last week. Mm. Yeah. yeah, with Nokia. I was on a trip there and I was chatting to them about this and they kind of shared the concern, which is we, we replace not just customer service jobs, but you have things like GitHub Copilot, whatever mm -hmm. it's called, that can do programming, yeah. uh, software engineering yeah. jobs. They take over and it becomes more intent based and therefore you don't invest in the talent to do that anymore because it can be done by AI. And at yeah. some point in the future, nobody really knows how that works except for the yeah. AI system. Yeah, you know, Wally. and and which is where you get a bit skynetty. Yeah, and then Wally. it's like we we've never trained because I already I, I can already see this happening without AI that that some of these old legacy jobs mm. in telecom they have to bring people out of retirement because they don't have anybody who can do who knows how some of but these you know, old you know, I think, oh, okay. work anymore. <laughs> COVID was the early AI because you know COVID um, showed people who are working and who aren't working. Mm. Yeah, and you know, I I forced all our CEOs, like all thirty three, tell me the people who didn't perform in COVID. You know what I mean? Right. Who went missing basically, didn't do their yes. work, and then I want a list, and then you're to eliminate them. Oh, you yeah. got to you got to lay them all off, and we we laid off seven hundred and fifty people who went missing. <laughs> who who thought for a year that they were having a laugh? Yeah, they were having a laugh. You yeah. know, at the they, they weren't doing any work basically, but probably logging on, but yeah. doing nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was still Brian doesn't pay attention. Yeah, so you know, with remote working also yeah. um, has a similar. You, you know, you can give you the same visual as well because mm. you know a lot of people, a lot of companies have allowed you know gone remote working. I think it's ridiculous, to be honest with you, because, you know, I know I learned from working in an office or working in an environment with other in teams with people, not maybe not in an office, but out in the field or whatever. But if you're working beside somebody who has knowledge and yeah. you have an insatiable appetite, and you, get those you can't do that. You can't that do that on a Zoom call. You know what I mean? Yeah. But also standards dropped. I, you know, our, our CEO, Oliver Coughlin, and myself flew in one night to one country. I won't say the country. And they were all looks as if they were, you know, out playing <laughs> basketball for the day. So well, you don't want to see what I look like so when I'm working during the day. They were in singlets and everything. And I was in a bit of a clobber because that's me. And not a tie, but we yeah. sat down. There wasn't even a bottle of water to get a presentation how the business was going. Now, they hadn't had a visit because of COVID for 18 months. Right, so we just, just couldn't get to them. Looking so weird. I looked at the CEO and I said, listen, um, I said, would you mind nipping home and coming back in business attire? What do you think that is? 
Okay. <laughs> Which right. is a test in itself. So this is a small country. Then he puts a hoodie on. So they all fucked off home and they came back an hour later, <laughs> you know, and dressed up. For, and then we went through the stats on the business, like EPS, NPS, network stats, everything. And everything was shite. Yeah. So we had to give... You couldn't help but join the dots. So the CEO got the gate the next morning. You know what I mean? We just said, out. Yeah. Straight away. Because if you're a consumer business, you know, you, you need to, you can't have falling standards. You know what I mean? You have yep. to have higher standards every year and give a better service to your to your customers. Yeah, well, we, I mean, my, my defense, in case um, any of my employers are listening to this <laughs> and they're going to suddenly start insisting I come into the office every day, there's two, thing, there's two things about being a journalist. One, it's not collaborative. And two, you can see whether we've done any work because we've either published a story or we haven't. Well, yeah. Um, but I can, I can imagine for people who are just like back office or, or middle management or whatever, mm-hmm. um, yeah. If, I mean, they're, if you know, they're, if the, you know, if people are not working, they don't deserve a job. Yeah, now, I'm, fair enough. I'm, Can't argue with that. I'm sounding like you now, a libertarian. I'm a, I'm a bit of a socialist, but you know, <laughs> if they can't, if they're not working out the door, it's yeah. just it's a you know, it's bad for the business. But do you think there are large numbers of staff? Because whenever these um, you know financial issues come up and BT yeah. needs to retrench a bit, and he goes, "Oh, we, we're going to cut fifty five thousand jobs over the next ten years." And I think he, Philip Janssen, who announced that figure, only attributed ten thousand of them to AI. But do you, do, it almost seems like they have large pools of staff sitting there not really... Di- what did David Graeber call it? That's uh, anthropologist bullshit jobs or something. People mm. doing... Yeah, it's oh, also, a lot of it's also not fair to the employee. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, but... That's, that's a horrible thing to say. It makes me sound like a real callous sort of... Like, but we're, we're in, we're in an industry for. where margins, profitability is under ferocious pressure. We can't get price increases. We can't get price increases even halfway to what the inflation rate is yep. or the interest cost of capital. So, unfortunately, we're, sh- we're shrinking all the time our, and we're trying to introduce technology to make up for that. You know, right. And AI will have a, an integral part of that. Right. So, that's so, inter- it's, it's interesting. Sorry, Ian. Uh, where, you know, we were so, telcos like, will lose 50% of their staff in the next so, so, four uh, that, years, that is five what I was years. Say, but yeah. this, this obviously goes outside the area that you're trying to use AI in at the moment. This goes be, much beyond the beyond. Uh, customer care function. This is yeah. right into network yeah. operations and stuff. Yeah, and, uh, you know, just you know, obviously digitally as well, everything is moving digital. You know, retail outlets are going to close. You know, it's just yeah. a complete change, yeah. you know, because yeah. we're in a dog-eat-dog industry. You said it at the beginning. It's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's the headline. You got to, you got to get a bit, bit more of a shoit. You got to get yeah. a, you got a shoit. shoit. Um, uh, yeah, shite's more London. Shite. Yeah, <laughs> Brendan Gleeson. Like, it's more North yeah. Bridge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Brendan Gleeson. He's got a great accent. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I, I don't want to labour the point because this, this is this is sort of peripheral. But you know, it's interesting that that you said to me quite rightly that I'm libertarian and you're more socialist and yet you're this very successful entrepreneur. And there is, a, it's slightly counterintuitive that a successful entrepreneur can be socialist. Now, we've covered it quite a lot. You've, you've spoken yeah. about your activities in Haiti and, and other places, Papua New Guinea. But I think it's just a really interesting thing how how one reconciles the two things. How reconcile, one reconciles running a functional business, i.e. that has to make money, mm-hmm. with other non-purely profit or revenue driven motives and and I actually all all in favor of it yeah you sleep better though yeah yeah totally and I'm you sleep better at night you don't feel you it know, can't guilty. just be about money yeah, yeah. 
It can't just be about money. So, yeah. Okay, so um, if it's all right, we've just got one more little news bit I'm going to talk about, and then and then we'll Close look towards wrapping up. Yeah, it's you're quite welcome. It's an eclectic conversation we're having. Sorry? It's quite an eclectic yes, conversation. Yes, it is. But they are like this. What we do. <laughs> this is a madhouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I take eclectic as a compliment. It is. Very much. Um, so, uh, again, this is, you know, I don't expect you to have any on like personal insight into it but again as, as someone who as you've just said thing? as you've just said hires and fires ceos uh on a on a sunday morning no you didn't say that that's my flourish um there was yeah optus which is an, an australian i think it's the second operator behind telstra hmm. in australia Number two, yeah right um tpg three yeah there we go um, yeah. What happens to Vodafone? If you ever want a job that? as a telecoms journalist, I think we do a great what, job. What, what was the number three? Wasn't Vodafone in there? They, 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 behind they were Hutchinson, Vodafone, that's it. Optus, and Telstra. I okay. never, that's, this is one market I never cover, yeah. really. Yeah, well, uh, we don't much. And you've got an excellent um, we've got writer uh, who, who does stuff for you. Yeah. We, don't, we don't have an Aussie bureau at <laughs> telecoms.com. <laughs> So I have to cover it. Anyway, and um, they, had a, they had a big outage. Optus had a big you outage. You look in Australia. Do you know that? Is this, is this <laughs> look? It, it is, uh, it is uh, what's the Australian rock band? Oh, ACDC. Akadaka. Yeah, yeah, ACDC. 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 Well, actually, actually a compliment, does he? I'm going to get, I'm gonna get uh, an ACDC T-shirt because it was my dad's I mean, they were band. very Scottish. Come so on. we're going to have the Hugh Bichaini Memorial ACDC T-shirt on the podcast. Oh. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they had a big outage and why I say big outage, it was like most of a day, which is a big mm. deal for a, for a national 14 operator. hours. Yeah. Um, and, um, and that was that. And, and then the interesting thing, once something like that happens is why? Uh, it was because they mixed the mobile and the fix together. Okay, basically. go on. Okay. You that's must be telling me told. some stuff that I haven't read. No, carry that was, on. That's what I was told. They mix the mobile and the fix together. What does that yeah, mean? They, they shared networks and they should have separated them. Oh. And, and it took them a long time to identify what the problem was. But why did they do that if that, in hindsight, was clearly a bad thing? God only knows. Cost yeah. savings? Yeah. Might have been... Or just it, human just error in it, some Human way. error. Yeah. Right. So the interesting thing, as far as I got when I wrote this two days ago... So, um, obviously, I should have rung you up, Dennis, and got the inside scoop before I wrote the story, but there we go. Um, is that they put up something on their FAQ. Yeah, sorry, we fucked everything up, but it's all back to normal now, so let's just forget it ever happened. Is that how they, is that how they wrote it? Yeah. <laughs> With the Aussie accent. They should have, though. The F bit of FAQs has definitely yeah. got a swear word in it. <laughs> Fuck all questions. <laughs> there we go. Um... And uh, the C word spelled with a Q. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's the one swear word we don't say on the pod. Although I think we did last week, didn't we? You said it under your breath and you were talking over him and I couldn't hear it. Oh, okay. Uh, so I night. should have just let it go. Okay, anyway. Um, uh, yeah, and um, Optus came out with this thing in their FAQs, which, which means whatever you want it to mean, um, going, yeah, it was. Um, it was all down to this um, inter uh, interchange network yeah. or whatever they called it. Yeah. Um, and and one then it turned single failure, point of failure. That was the problem. Yeah. yeah. They, they identified one point of failure, and it was some kind of um, global in exchange network. And then, and then it basically, I think leaks came to the Aussie press saying it was Singtel's STIX exchange. Now this is especially awkward because Singtel owns Optus. Um, 
and then Singtel came out and went, "You're talking shit, son." Um, and uh, in Chinese, yeah, he, yes. doesn't, he doesn't do Chinese Relate. accents. That's his Chinese accent. Um, what is it? I think we, I think I've got a quote. Yeah, no, I don't do Chinese. If I'm doing Xi Jinping, I do him like Ray Winston, like being a Cockney geezer, because <laughs> it's just not worth getting in trouble for trying to do a shitty Chinese accent. Um, and uh, yeah, his his so his um, Singtel's rebuttal to these things that came out. This was put as one of those um, not a press release, but one of those um, messages to to the stock exchange, to yeah. the market that that people do to address media speculation. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure you. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've been there. Yeah. Um, and so, quote: During the upgrade, data traffic was routed to other points of presence on the STIX network, and back into customers' network. The STIX upgrade was complete, completed within 20 minutes, and all its customers' routers that were connected to it, including Optus's, um, were up and running. We are aware that Optus experienced a network outage after the upgrade when a significant increase in addresses being propagated through their network triggered preset fail-safes. However, the upgrade, their upgrade, was not the root cause. So does that sound plausible? I mean, sounds like sound... a football manager's interview to me. Yeah, it is a bit. Uh, having lost 5-0. Um, mm. Look, I, I would have thought Singtel should have stayed out of it because they're only drawing attention that they're a foreign company you yep. know, operating in Australia, you know. Which but, is controversial at yeah. the moment anyway. Did, did the CEO get the gate? No. In, in from Optus, yeah. yes. Yeah, so she's, Optus, called, yeah. she's called... Um, Probably unfair. Kelly Bayer Rosmarin. Yeah. I, I think she was... Her, her job was on the line anyway because there'd already been a breach, hadn't there? A cybersecurity yeah. breach. Yeah, but, you know, if you're the CEO... There's a lot of things you control, but that that's probably not one of them, unless they pull the resources out of that part of their business. Mm, yeah, like if you uh, Lisa Agart, who's a fantastic CEO in TSTT in Trinidad, lost her job because there was a cyber breach. I think that's mad. Right. You know, talented CEO. Yeah. Presumably, know, put security measures. It was just in a place. political decision to get rid of her because yeah, yeah she's throwing under the bus. Yeah, throwing under the bus, which how, was completely wrong. How far is any operator from a cyber breach? Is it just luck? Oh, two seconds. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's, that's quite scary. Absolutely. So, and there's only so much you can do with investment in in mitigation. Yeah. And Would I fire our CEO because we had a cyber breach and we, we know we've had, yeah. you know, limit. We've been lucky, but absolutely not. But the point I made in, in my story, whether or not she should have been fired for the outage in of itself is one matter. Mm. But as soon as it started getting leaked to the press that it was Singtel's fault, mm. and the leaks must surely have come from Optus. Surely that put her in a much more precarious position. I'd say it probably came from somewhere else, not right. us. Okay. But you're, you're keeping your speculation as vague as that, are you? Um, so, you have a conflict of interest. Right, okay, <laughs> fine. Yeah, so well, you, got, you, you operate all, all over the place, so yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the only point I said is... If STIX was the only... So they refer to an internet... Here's, here's the, the phrase I was groping for earlier. Um, they refer to an international peering network. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. And I said, if STIX was the only international peering network to issue a so software upgrade around the time of the outage, then it seems either Singtel or Optus must be lying. In other words, Optus said it was due to an international peering network. Logically, yeah. Um, yeah right. And, and if Singtel was the only one that happened, then according to Optus... It must be Singtel's fault. And Singtel's going, it's not our fault. So one of the two of them are lying. And so you've got the parent company and the subsidiary company in direct opposition with each other and their public messaging. Well, that can happen. Yeah. You know, that can happen. But it's pretty awkward, isn't it? It is awkward. But, you know, look, 
Optus will recover pretty quickly. People won't cancel their subscriptions. Yeah, they'll continue on. Now, if it happens a second or third time, then mm. it's a then, then it's catastrophic. Once is carelessness, yeah. Yeah. and so on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, but you you still feel for um, the CEO of Optus for getting? I the do. Camera. Yeah, I actually do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So if you were if you were Mr. Singtel, yeah, and uh, I've probably got his name here. Yes, Yuan Quan Moon. Yeah. Um, how how might if you, how might you have managed it differently? I just said nothing, but, right? But there's a yeah. there's a Let them handle it with... locally. Why why would you draw attention that you're a Singaporean company owning the number two operator in in, in and they're you know they're pretty xenophobic in Australia. You know yeah. they like Aussie companies. Mm. But the, so yeah, better say nothing. Been an issue in the past. It has yeah. But but I, I mean I'm uh, interesting thing that if you remember last year there were a series of internet outages. AWS had downtime and yeah. Facebook had one and I think yeah. Ak- Akamai yeah. had one. The I don't think anybody went because of those outages and they were yeah. probably much more disruptive. The AWS yeah. one took down a number of websites yeah. and businesses for a day. Yeah. And I don't recall anybody going, uh, this person's lost their job because of that. They were they were just attributed to happens. but they were they were to do with soft. It wasn't cyber attacks. They were software upgrades that went wrong. Someone pressed the wrong button, yeah. and made a mistake. I mean, maybe some engineer the lost his job. But the, uh, B, the BAC who had moved everything to India, and then a few weeks after, yeah, huge. Yeah, but, out, but the CEO didn't, get and he it. kept yeah. his job. Yeah, yeah. but Singtel are a first class operator. Like you know, you, you know, they made great investments. You know, Optus has been a very long term investment. You know, over twenty twenty five mm. years. You know, but they own part of Airtel in India. They were being a yep. great partner to Sunil Mattel. You know, and they they've they've invested their money smartly. Yeah, I'll tell you one int- intriguing thing. When I was looking for. Um, when I was on the Optus site looking for press releases or, or updates or whatever, there's nothing on the Optus site about corporate stuff. And the, when you scroll to the bottom, which is often where yeah. the corporate stuff is, the only thing it gets to is straight away it says about Singtel yeah. at yeah. the bottom of the Optus site, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah, they don't want it? to advertise it heavily over there. No, no but, but the point is, they um, you know back to the point you, you both were making about... Um, to what extent Singtel should be stealthy about its involvement with Optus. Mm. When you get to the bottom of the Optus site, the only corporate link is about Singtel. It's not mm-hmm. about Optus. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Obviously, we can only speculate what what Singtel's sort of broader corporate comms strategy is. But, uh, yeah, I think, you're, I think you're onto something there, Dennis. Um, just, just keep your head down. The TPG, which is the third... Is it TPG? Is mm. that the right? That's the third one. Uh, that's, yeah, that's I think an, they're with Hutchinson now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they're, 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 they're Hong Kong, um, yeah, part of that group, yeah. basically. Well, Hutchinson, I'm not sure they've sold their equity down, but I think there still could be a shareholder. Okay. But TPG is deemed to be an Australian company. Right, okay. Well, just curious, yeah, yeah who the players are. Cool. Yeah. Well, look, we're getting close to, I'm sure we've done nearly two hours, haven't we, Pierre? Yeah. Um, Ian, I'll hand it over to you. We, we've had we've had lots of, it's been a really fun sort of meandering chat. <laughs> for now, these are the best podcasts, so the meandering ones. Uh, and you know, and there's so much to chat to you about, Dennis. I figure we could do two more hours, but you know, before we wrap it up, Ian, I'll put it over to you. Are there any other sort of last things um, that we chatted about today? Maybe I interrupted you. No, <laughs> you I don't get think to so. Ask. What? Okay, uh, it's an open question, but what what are you doing next? I mean, is, have you got? Is there anything you can talk about that you're doing next in telecom? Because I know there'll, there'll be things you can't, obviously. Uh, but, well, you know, uh, I'm now a minority shareholder in Digicel, so I'm non-executive. So. Basically, I have 12 hours a day now to fill. And, you know, I, I won't work 12 hours a day anymore, but I will be looking at other investments and making other 
interest, you know, interesting things, hopefully. Yeah. Well, we'll it gives it, you great, you know, it freshens yourself up, you reinvent yourself and off you go again. Yeah. And I would imagine someone who's been as busy and entrepreneurial as you, you know, even if you get to a stage where you're looking to dial it back one yeah. notch, yeah, yeah. you're still going to want to get involved. Actually, that was one thing I was going to um, ask about. When we were talking about um, philanthrocapitalism, yeah, yeah. look, I'm still pronouncing it. I'm so yeah. proud of myself. Um, it reminded me of a thing that I mean, you, you probably um, are familiar with all this crazy stuff that happened with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried and yeah. all that sort of thing. And he was associated with this thing called effective altruism. Yeah. Have you heard that term? I have, yeah. To what extent, if at all, does that overlap with your perspective on philanthrocapitalism? Uh, well, I think, you know, he was using money to put into super PACs. Or, yeah, he was, you know, he was bribing a lot of politicians, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, you know. I hope I can say that. We're, we're, you know, I wouldn't, I think if that's what you're talking about, that's not our area really, to be honest with you, influencing policy through super PACs or anything like that. So, Shall I tell you what, what Wikipedia says? I went and looked this up um, when I was looking into the definition of effective altruism, um, which seems like one of those very caveated mm -hmm. sort of terms. It says, this is Wikipedia, obviously, you know, take, take it with the appropriate pinch of salt. Effective altruism is a philosophical and social movement that advocates, quote, and I don't know who this quote is attributed to, it's probably at the bottom, quote, using evidence and reason to figure out how to benefit others as much as possible and taking action on that basis. And so from what I've heard when I've heard podcasts or people talking about mm. it, it's it's basically people like Bill Gates and, and other people who've got a ton of cash who have some philanthropic motives, if we give him benefit of the doubt, like I think he spent a lot of money on health in Africa and that mm. sort of thing. Um, but they think they they're smarter than governments or NGOs or charities or whatever. And they can find out the most effective way to use capital to, to produce the, the best possible outcome according to whatever their stated aims are. I suppose the only thing, the only thing that I'm involved with would be the repair campaign, which is, you know, a campaign to get reparations and uh, justice, basically, you know, reparatory justice for what happened during the slavery period for about 300 years in, in the Caribbean. Okay. So, you know, that is... Is a, that confined within the Caribbean? Within with the, within the 15 CARICOM countries, and, and that would include Haiti as well, it's French-speaking, but also the Dutch Caribbean as well. So, you know, basically all these countries got their independence in the 1960s, early 70s, and they were left with a, a bare cupboard to create a new country. Yeah. And so all of them are, you know, have had different versions of economic development. But, you know, if you if you really look at this, that, you know, there's an underlying uh, tension because, you know, if you t talk to political leaders or PMs, they all say, you know, we need reparatory justice because when slavery ended in 1838, the people who got compensated were the slave owners. Yes. And they got compensated by, with huge amounts of money. In the case of Jamaica, approximately 22 billion, Haiti, 19 billion. And they were compensated all the way to 2015. So, really? Yeah, wow. well, because Britain had to borrow a lot of money to pay for this, to pay okay. people to give up slavery. And Britain only paid that money off in 2015. Blimey. So this is a modern day issue. But, and this is not an anti-British thing, being yeah. an Irish guy. But well, we, the, were, we were among the better people during the period of 
the slave trade to try and knock it on the head, weren't we? Well, not quite. Oh, not no? quite. Okay. No, not, not quite. Uh, you know, basically, no. this was a kind of a holocaust. I was holo- wincing because I don't really know my history. This was kind of a holocaust for 300 years. And the European Union essentially evolved because, you know, Portugal and other countries shipped all the slaves. Yes. Yeah. About 12 million slaves, about 15 to 20% of them lost their, they were thrown overboard because they died, they, they got sick or whatever. But then they were sold on the block in Jamaica at, you know, at the dock basically. And then they, you know, then they were forced to have, to have children and, you know, there was rape and, you know, there's, it was just a shocking period for mm. about 300 years. So... Uh, you know, a lot of these countries, there's a kind of an underlying current where they love Great Britain, the UK, the Commonwealth, the king, the obviously the queen previously. But on the other hand, they say, we never got properly compensation. Yes, now, fair enough. people will say, and we've done focus groups, oh, we should get the population the, uh, of the Caribbean should get compensation. We're saying no. We believe that this m- looks like more of a 25-year plan, a social and economic development plan for each of the 15 countries that would fund, you know, green energy, health education, get children into university, a bit like what Ireland did, you know, giving free university. And you move, you know, move these countries to knowledge-based economies. And that looks like sort of 10% of the budget every year being incremental, which would come jointly from the UK and the European Union and would be paid over 25 years. Now, that's the formula that we're we're pushing forward. We have broad support from the CARICOM Reparations Commission and all the reparations committees in each of the countries and the governments because if, for example, in Jamaica, we're going department to department, say, well, if you had investment, what would you do with education? And they will probably, we want to get children into school area earlier. That's going to cost us $50 million a year. What would you do then in university? Oh, we want to sell and send 5,000 people to university. That's going to cost us another 50 million. So that money would come in over 25 years and you'd lift uh, that terrible term leveling up, mm. but you would lift the Caribbean out of you know, um, moderate prosperity into fully functioning economies. Sounds completely laudable. And this, this is a whole other podcast. Well, this is a whole other podcast. And, and, and you're welcome back, Dennis. Anytime. Uh, especially as long as you keep beer is such good. quality booze. <laughs> um, but, um, yes, no, it is a whole other podcast. And I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up here partly just to acknowledge what you just said, Ian. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to um, treat it superficially. Um, but yeah, that comes back to that thing that we've touched on a few times over this pod, which is um, that reconciliation of, for want of a better term, capitalism, which I don't find a very um, useful term because it's all tied into like Marxism and all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. But um, let's say free marketism or, 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 or profit-driven, um, you know, running company, whatever, and other matters, which we all agree, you know, none of us... I mean, there will be some people, but most of us would like to feel. So, I mean, I I, I mentioned this on the pod um, last week, and and it's it, you know I don't I don't want to say this now to um, make things at all awkward, but my dad died recently, I'm sorry. and thank you. Um, sorry for your and and one of the one of the things that just makes you think about is it makes you a bit more philosophical, mm. and you're like shit. You know, what's the point of it all, and all that sort of thing. And I I've, I've been putting off writing his obituary as well because I'm trying to 
it's a hell of a thing to summarise 75 years of someone's life mm-hmm. um, in, in an essay. But it's very cathartic. Yeah, no, I will do it. You know. And I, I admit yeah. there's a degree of procrastination as mm-hmm. well. Um, but the reason I bring it up is, you know, you think about these higher things over and above just profit or making money. And, and look, I, one of the reasons I, I don't like it when people um, over-demonise money is we all need money, obviously. Mm-hmm. We all got pay bills. I got anyone's got dependents. I got to deal with that. My dad was increasingly dependent before he died, so I had I had it both sides. Mm. Um, so we've all got to make money, but it isn't just about that. My obituary isn't going to be here lies Ubicheno. He made a few quid and then he died. So you know, there's got to be a lot more to it than that. Mm. Um, and so yeah, I find that interesting. As you say, I'll, I'll probably wrap it up there unless either Rita got anything else to add. Um, because it is a whole other podcast, and maybe one will do. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating thing, reconciling those thank things. Thank you very much for having me, lads. I enjoyed thank the... Thank the, you for coming over. Yeah, yeah. The drink. Thank, thank you very and much for, for coming over, for jumping off the plane. And for your very, very generous gift as well. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Ian, on your birthday. Happy I'm the only one who hasn't made much effort. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to dress wise? <laughs> well, in, in every sense of the word. And so, and thank you for listening. And yeah, the next one, oh, actually, I was going to say this at the start. I'll say it at the end. Next one will be um, a little while away because in between now and then, I'm really busy. I'm doing two events on the 30th of December. Uh, one is a Future Vision uh, event during the day, and, and Ian's involved in that and we're going to be interviewing people like Howard Watson, Yago Tenorio up on stage. And then in the evening, I've got to quickly go into the bogs, change into my dinner jacket and host the Glowtel Awards, which is our annual awards ceremony. So I'm at you know, that as well. But only and he's at that, but just as a spectator. <laughs> you're just there to laugh at my attempts at humour when I'm up on stage. So uh, 30th November, if you're interested in either, check it out on our website. And other than that, um, join us for the next one. Yeah.